everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. You may have noticed that Power Athlete has been on a bit of an ACL kick recently. If there were a joint injury pandemic, this would definitely be it. With nearly 120,000 ACL injuries per year in the States alone and an up to 32% re-injury rate, it is a real bitch to tear your ACL. Dr. Adam Ants, an orthopedic surgeon of the infamous Andrews Institute, joins us to provide another perspective on injury, including the use of stem cell therapy and blood flow restriction. What can capillary refill rates tell us about recovery, and what can we do to prevent our kids from suffering catastrophic injury? Interestingly enough, when a kid suffers an injury, there are some possible benefits that could result. Movie reviews and occasionally talking to people smarter than us. That is what Power Athlete Radio does. Here it is, episode 362. Your pain threshold over here can't fucking wear headphones for two hours. Get out of here. You're soft, dude. Are we rolling? You're soft. Yeah, we are. Do you feel hot there? Just feel hot, hot. Those are hot ears. Hot, 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 hot. But how cool is fucking ants? Yeah, yeah. He. I just kept thinking, like, of course, John has the coolest fucking surgeon. He's just kind of like he's got the hair going, the surgeon hair. He's got the surgeon steady hands when he puts them up there like that. Man. He's a he's a cool cat, yeah. man. And he's so cool, in fact, that he, like the Luke Summers, yes. is the Adam Ants. Oh, we're douche brothers. On Instagram. Uh, <laughs> dude, he, uh, uh, the first time I met Ants, I mean, like, I had never, like, I sat next to him at this thing, and I was like, he's just kind of sitting there, and we just strike up a conversation. And uh, I'm like, he's like, oh, I work for, you know, I'm orthopedic for Dr. Andrews. And I was like, oh, I just made the joke. I'm like, well, you know, I'm a Stedman guy. Because mm-hmm. there was kind of like not a rivalry, but like you're either kind of one clear or the other. Routes, like right. you, you've, uh, um, well, you know, it's probably Stedman, like Hawkins and Vale, and then you got Andrews Institute, and you're like different teams kind of gravitate towards certain ones. It's got to be kind of like like tools. You're a Milwaukee guy. Yeah. I'm a Dewalt guy. Right. Milwaukee's are not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I use uh, I like Dewalt's um, uh, plugin tools, so yeah, I use all yeah. the Dewalt plugin. But, so, okay. but like that's kind of right, yeah. So uh, so he was like, I kind of just made the joke, and he's like, oh, I was one of Stedman's fellows, and I went through the whole process with him, and then Andrews mm-hmm. hired me away. And uh, as I started talking with him, like I talked to him for like a couple years about this thing, and went out and then did this, and I I just like was like man he's my guy and then people and then people were like oh why don't you go somewhere local so you don't have to go to florida and this and i'm like i'm gonna go to the best dude in the world that gives me the best chance just going down yeah, to some dude. local dude totally. uh who, who could be great i'm not saying he's not but for me i have to feel that like the person who's working on me is the you know the best in the world at mm-hmm. what he does and gonna give me the best chance well you know what what else do you really like would you do that with other than Surgery, like you go to a mechanic, like you buy a car, go to like those things. Just kind of, I don't know. Like I, I, I totally get it, and I probably wouldn't have thought that way as a default. But after hearing you talk about it today, like, well, it's like, already a major expense. Well, like, like Doctor Tom, like we go out and we yeah, get totally. Doctor blood, uh, blood work from Doctor Tom, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. you know, we talk to sleep with parsley. I mean, um, you know, we talk uh, regenerative, you know, farming and diet and all this with Rob Wolf. I mean, mm-hmm. we pretty much like. I've always said that, like, I don't think I'm the smartest person, but I definitely have the coolest fucking Rolodex of Mm -hmm. friends that I can reach out to that I know are experts. And not just, like, you know, the at-home, I've watched a couple YouTube expert. I mean, like, legitimately, like, you know, Dr. Ants is like, yesterday I was doing research on Mm -hmm. monocytes. They are the the individuals that the YouTube experts 
are watching to pretend they're experts. Yeah. Ah. You know, I mean, and, uh, mm. um, you know. Often imitated, never replicated. No, but uh, uh, Ants is, um, yeah, man. I mean, he, uh, like, the day after surgery, um, when I went in for there, he he texted me, and it was a picture of him and, and Andrews on, like, their private jet, like, flying somewhere. <laughs> and he's like, I had to go. And I was like, dude, you fucking left me. And he's like, uh, he's like, when Dr. Andrews calls and comes pick you on your jet, you better be there. And I just was like, <laughs> understood. But, like, that's uh, that also makes me feel good that, like, my surgeon, like, the mm-hmm. best dude in the world since Stedman retired, yeah. uh, you know, the best guy in the world, like, this is his, you know, head of regen and, you know, his, his uh, mm-hmm. you know, his kind of heir apparent. So I feel... Uh, glad and, and also stoked that we had a good enough rapport that he was able to jump on a podcast with yeah, us. Yeah, dude, and just very like interesting to hear a sports med and a surgeon be such an advocate for folks, and then hear how how willing folks are to go and like go under the knife and like just interesting. Not that it's I can't yeah, imagine he, him wrong. doing a voluntary Tommy John. Oh, I, I, I I thought you were going to ask him that, but I, I firmly know he'd be like, "I'm not your guy." I'm not but if the patient's it. pushing hard enough, do you have like? No, I guess you can turn them down, right? Yeah, no, I mean yeah. this isn't communist rush. Well, maybe it is now, mm-hmm. but like we don't have such a health, you know, socialized healthcare where all of a sudden ants has to do a surgery because right. somebody right. else needs. Well, it I didn't necessary. know if there was like a liability thing, but it wouldn't make sense. No, right? I mean, they would not operate on, well, operate on me. I was trying to steer, and then all of a sudden I drove into a well, fucking so dump truck. He he did my surgery, and my older brother has a similar frozen shoulder on the other side. So mm-hmm. Rob, I was telling Rob how well my shoulder was working. He sent Ants all of his information and his X-rays, and Ants is like, um, "I wouldn't do your, I wouldn't do a surgery on you." Oh, really? So, uh, which is funny because my brother Rob went to another surgeon who's like, "Oh yeah, we'll cut you tomorrow." Sure. And my brother Rob's like, "This fucking guy's just trying to play, pay for his new, you know, remodel or whatnot." Yeah. yeah. And Ants is like, "I don't think based upon," uh, and he did like kind of a telehealth thing because mm-hmm. he like he's like, "Hey, let's just jump on a, a Zoom call." before you fly out here and I'll do the deal because I'll be able to tell really quick. So he looked at mm-hmm. my brother's x-rays, did the telehealth thing, and was like, I don't think I can improve your deal with um, uh, with surgery, but I think the rehab protocol that your brother is doing would be more beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wrote a similar protocol, and that's what my brother's been doing. Sweet. Sweet, so, yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to dig into, I guess, like the current state of regenerative uh protocols and surgeries and sports med with dr adam ants stem cells and chondrocytes and Mm -hmm. monocells the uh the private jet toten fella who decided to slice and dice the big guy's shoulder and get him into uh his next era of upper body training i guess right like things have certainly changed for you well now until you get back when he said that uh dynamic thing i was like I am going to fucking whip some med balls tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to set things up and I'm going to put text there. And I'm going to try to knock him over. Well, pre-surgery, John gave me a little one, two at <laughs> our, our NFL combine assist awesome. with Mr. So Dave you, Spitz. You're going to compare the post-surgery uh, to the pre-surgery? That's Dude, what I'm feeling. Cause I'm I, still traumatized. I, uh, God damn it. I wish you guys were up in the gym. Uh, so as I was working out, uh, Kelly came over and she like, um, I was doing some, uh, physio ball hamstring curls. So she comes over and kicks the the physio ball at me. And I like I had the perfect opportunity. It was coming and I kicked it right at her, caught her in the chest, and she fucking totally goes down, like like shocked face. And I like I pause for a second, like waiting for tears, and she's like, 
I can't believe you did that. And I was like, oh, thank God. You kicked it at me first. Yeah, and then, like, like <laughs> she's been standing there. Instantly, I can just feel like the laser beams of my wife staring oh, at me like, boy. you rotten son of a bitch. And then Killy didn't cry and everything. And like, Cash thought it was hilarious. And they were like, oh, and then they want to start kicking the ball at, at each other. And I'm like, oh, thank Dodged God. Dodged a bullet. This, this Dodged a bullet. This could have gone really bad. Yeah, typically, uh, like, that was, would, like, ricochet with Killy's luck. Like, ricochet, hit the fan, fan blade falls on her, and she's like, off to the hospital, uh, right? Dude, uh, well, normally what would happen is I would kick it at Jamie. Jamie would somehow move, and the thing would blade off of Jamie, bounce off, and then hit Killy in the face and, like, knock a tooth out. And I'd yeah. be like, fuck. <laughs> uh, but, dude, it was it was really funny. I, um, well, her I, earlier endeavors it, gave her high pain tolerance. And That's right. the best part about it is I was like, this was so gratifying. <laughs> After homeschooling, I'm like, man, the teachers probably um, go out there like, oh, you guys want to play kickball? Watch out. In real big that, trouble. That's uh, Billy Madison yeah. where, where he's spraying the kids and he's like, you okay? He's like, yeah, why? <laughs> I, I don't even know you. It's fucking awesome, dude. <laughs> but uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to dig in. You're going to learn a lot, a lot about this. You know, hopefully you don't need it or won't uh, need to access but, it, but it's good to have this yeah. information, like in, 100%. And if you do get injured, uh, you know, and I was, we didn't get into it because I think we got into so many cool other things, but like just... Don't go to the local dick down the street. Like, mm-hmm. find a surgeon that that one uh, has a good reputation, has worked with athletes, has success, can explain it to you, and um, you know and that you feel comfortable with. Because, as he said, you know your perceived outcome is one of your greatest allies in terms of healing. Right. So, like, if you go in with confidence, of like, hey, man, this is the best this guy guy's in the world. The guy. He's he's my guy. I'm going to be 100%. I'm spending a little extra jack. Will that, you know, yeah, I mean, that it, also contributes to it? I, yeah, I was, find I, out? I was in a hotel room and, you know, thank God it was off season. Uh, in Pens- It was in, like, uh, whatever, Pensacola Beach or yeah, some, somewhere in Pensacola. We stayed at a hotel room. Had to get two rooms because my wife and my kids and I'm in there for, like, three days. But it was hilarious because there was, like, a hurricane. And uh, it was off season, so like the rooms were dirt cheap, and everything just worked out really well. I was able to get into surgery, and the one thing which was nice about these guys, and I told them this, I'm like, hey, every time I've had surgery, they give me way too much anesthetic, and I don't take painkillers or you know drugs or anything, so my tolerance is low. So every time that I've gone in for surgery, it always takes me like three, four, five hours to wake up, mm-hmm. and I always wake up and like. I know something's wrong that I've been asleep too long. It's a weird deal with surgery, mm-hmm. and when. Uh, I told them this and I even told when I talked to the um, anesthesiologist, I'm like, Hey man, like it always takes me four or five hours to wake up. Like they give me too much and I don't, I don't come out fast. And so he was like, okay. Um, sure enough, I went in there. Uh, and after the surgery, when they took me into the recovery room, I think I was like, they woke, I, I woke up in probably like 20 or 30 minutes and I woke up like feeling dramatically better. And I was mm-hmm. like, man, that was uh, I wouldn't sleep very long. And they were like, no, you, woke up and when the anesthesiologist came in he's like how you feeling i'm like i feel great like i wasn't asleep as long and he's like yeah i uh i gave you dramatically less hmm. he's like i could see um i was a little nervous but like i didn't give you as much anesthetic and like you were fine you were right out everything worked but um he's like you know That's so interesting so yeah. like having that experience of like unless i'd have a bunch of surgeries right, I, right. I wouldn't have known that but like having and I also think maybe as an NFL player, like, uh, you know, maybe I have a little more kind of leeway to like talk to these guys like, hey, this isn't my first rodeo. I've had a bunch of surgeries. But I think like 
being educated, like, you know, being able to talk to the doctor, understanding your injuries, understand what he's telling you, understanding everything, like that's your part as a consumer. And, um, you know, because not everybody's like a Dr. Ants or a Dr. Andrews or a Dr. Stedman. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be just some fucking Wrench local term. Yahoo. Trying to, trying to remodel their kitchen. Yeah. Sell you on the upgrades. But uh, I guess if, you'd, if you're looking for a toolkit to stay out of this position or have your kids stay out of this position, it's kind of a timely deal because of our ACL course we're just launching. Yes. And as, as John said, it's on the patient. It's also on the parent to mm-hmm. arm yourself with information to protect your athlete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the biggest takeaways with our ACL injury prevention course. It arms the parents, the sport coaches, the strength and conditioning coaches to then protect their athletes. So we dive into assessments of what to look for in terms of in neurological injury mechanisms for the ACL injury from Tim Hewitt's podcast. Think back a couple episodes. If you haven't had the opportunity, dive into that episode because mm-hmm. a lot of our research in which we present within the course is based off Tim's research. So it's, it's a, a very invasive, fun learning experience that is truly about empowerment, handing off the information to not just you read these facts, you embody, you understand this, and you can apply the information to protect your athlete. Well, and also what I enjoyed about the course is that the uh, the ACL course and the mechanism for the training and all that flows very well with uh, our power athlete methodology. Mm-hmm. You know, so shocker. Like, <laughs> well, no, I mean, but like it. But also, that it's yeah. always nice. To like have of the world, you know, like uh, the foremost expert come on and discuss this and kind of go through all the research and everything and be like, oh, yeah, like this is well in line with what we're already doing. So Mm -hmm. what I always am nervous about is when we do these deep dives into this stuff, all of a sudden somebody comes out with something that's like juxtapose opposite of what right, we do right. and you're like ah uh, man we're gonna have to either you know and, and but but the, the difference too is that power athlete and really this whole system that you know has been developed is all about like performance and i always said it and you guys heard me say at the seminar and you guys said at the seminar if we find a better way to do it we will adopt that better way because our goal we're not stuck in dogma or method or dogma we're, we're following and chasing performance. And if we find something better, I'll be the first to one. Like we were talking about the other day about really over, overcooking and over retracting scapulas on the bench press, opposed mm-hmm. from keeping a, you know, just a, a neutral, yeah, a more neutral shoulder that allows the scapulas to kind of move underneath the bench press, which is something I did for a long time. And then as I started understanding uh, the movement of how the scap connects or, you know, is able to separate from the lat and how it all moves, understanding the shoulder mechanics through my rehab, mm-hmm. I was like, man, I think I taught that wrong. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Hatfield talked about it too in our last interview. Remember his bench? Yeah. He wanted to have those floating pads so that the scap can move a little bit. But what we weren't wrong in the sense is like protraction, right? So we were saying we want you to retract, but we just don't want you to like protract and internally well, rotate. I think press what the it bar. was is it was a reaction to watching people yeah, over yeah. pressing the bar and then like mm-hmm. what is that uh, protracting their yeah, shoulders. Yeah, but even think before you lock your elbow, right? Like when people are moving the bar here yeah. and locking. So that's what we were what, trying to combat. Yeah, the tricep is weak; it's out, and their compensation is to mm-hmm. use that back. Yeah. And so, like, I'm with you, but then should we have framed it differently? Yeah, and, there was a. And we a, eventually there, near the end yeah. we did. Uh, but, but like mm-hmm. getting people to really retract and overcook, I think what we were doing is, you know, and even walking and pinning the scapulas between the deal was it wasn't allowing the scap to move independent. Yeah. It was yeah. gluing the lat and the scap together, which uh, is, you know, is not advantageous. But 
understanding it better now and finding a better way to cue it, I think uh, I'll be the first to tell you, be like, hey, man, like, I don't know everything. And we're in this constant state of learning. New information comes out. Um, but at the end of the day, I feel like, especially with the ACL stuff going through it, like this flows very well with all of our power athlete programs, whether or not yeah. you fall in Jack Street, Field Strong, Grindstone, Third Monkey, you know, whatever it is, uh, Johnny Wad, you know, all that. Um, it just tends to work very well. As I said to David MCK, what, what we were really diligent about is, I'm bringing my analogy back, if this were an M&M, we're providing you the thin candy shell. So even if a coach isn't following the methodology, you can just, it's very general. It's a general approach to addressing modifiable risk factors and mitigating those risks that doesn't derail your program or your team warm-up. Like, if anything, it provides direction in your weakest points. Totally. So you as a, a high school football coach, you have your bigger, stronger, faster strength program or your bedrock program, but we provide then the specific practice warm-up directions and then the accessory work yeah. that is targeted specifically at attacking, shell. yes, you are correct, <laughs> Luke, attacking Ooh, individual so modifiable risk factors. That's what I think about when I look at your head. There's got to be a thin candy your shell around there. has got the shell on it. <laughs> yeah, melted chocolate in the dash. That's, That's going to up the resale value. That's going to up the resale value. I think you'd be okay on this one. It's oh, got a thin candy shell. My, <laughs> surprised you didn't know that. <laughs> My favorite is when he rips the doors off, like the fucking uh, when he Tommy boys the door. I've seen fucking people do that, and it's commonly referred to as he Tommy boyed the door. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where, oh, if you want to learn more about the course, it's it, man, parents, coaches, sports med, get on it. Power athlete or academy. Get in there, check it out. We'll probably have free lesson there or something that they could check out. And you can get a feel for what you're looking at. But, you know, if you want to know what you're walking away with, it's, it's a new lens on your coach's eye. You're going to be able to spot this dysfunction. And, uh, you know, in talking to ants today, like totally avoidable non-contact injuries are what you're attacking with the Fury of a Thousand Sons. Yeah, and he summed it very well in terms of athlete protection. Mm-hmm. And the the parents needing to step in there. Yeah. So check it out, and then uh, or don't. You know what? Don't. You could just sit on your couch, eat your M and M's, eat your bonbons. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a bonbon. I don't you even know what a bonbon is. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's like a it, ice cream. It's M&M. ice cream with uh, chocolate around it. Yeah. I'm sure thick. you've had ice cream and chocolate. You've had a fucking bonbon. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I feel like um, on international flights on Delta. They used to come around and give like those uh, Dove bars. Uh-huh. Those are like bonbons because it's like ice cream with chocolate around. What would you do for a Klondike bar? Remember those commercials? Would, but, you, uh, would you kill a man? Yeah, the Family Guy took it. Yeah, <laughs> but don't don't you remember on like Delta international no, I, flights they would always? No, can't you Kate, put us in luggage? Yeah, Kate, Kate, oh, I forgot. I'm the only one that gets upgrades on Delta. Uh, there was there used to be an airline called Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They were uh, out, um, uh, Iceland, uh, Iceland. Iceland. Yeah, Scandinavia, yeah. Iceland. And yeah, so Luke and I whipped across the the ocean a couple times on wow uh-huh. airlines you had to pay for to use the bathroom you had to pay for drinks like yeah. if you want to pay to use the bathroom yeah and a coke if you want a coke mm-hmm. you got a pony up and they had like ipad Ooh. type things for entertainment so international flights i'm not paying you ten dollars dude so seriously. you sit there for six hours and just staring at the back of somebody's seat no you that's got you come ready on the phone. On phone yeah you come ready on the phone yeah we yeah, did that's what but, i do but uh yeah man you know just buy the bathroom pass. <laughs> like, 
what was wrong with us? You, I support it. I don't know. I don't know where I'm at on this it, argument. It, like, I can't, for one, I can't believe that they charge for bathrooms. You think you can nickel and dime me? Watch this. That's like <laughs> business now. Wow. You're like, uh, I've been pissing in this seat. Go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Deal with it. Uh, anywho, man, we did a lot of talking today. You know what I'm excited about? I, Not talking. I, number one, this Sleeping podcast. Anymore? This podcast. I'm excited for our listeners to get into it. But number two is a couple rocks on the rocks tomorrow with my boys talking movies on the brew on sipping brew with the crew. What's, uh, what's our topic? Something Texas is gonna. We're gonna, I'll, we're gonna I'll get, craft it. But the no no the, no. We have a submission. Wink wink. That I'll craft and submit. <laughs> but tomorrow's the Rock's birthday. Oh, we got his new Tequils O'Neills, and we're going to put it on some mm-hmm. rocks. Terry, I got you, I got us some Terramana Blanco and Reposado, so we can do a little Ooh. little taster. And then obviously are we just drinking smoke it mark. straight up. Or are we going to do marks? I think we got to do at least like we don't have to take rip a shot, but do a little taster straight up to give an honest true, true serum try, true serum. And then we'll just smash some marks, smash a mark, sipping marks with the. Bros, we got to get a sip of Marg's. Yeah, podcast. we got to work on. I'm sure you can whip up a little graphic. That's what I'm thinking. A Marg mm-hmm. glass, whatever, with a uh, skull on it. Oh, the co- the Harry's cocktail design from the symposium. You know what I'm talking about? Hundred mm. percent. Good one. Mm. We'll just poach all of Harry's work. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, hey, you signed up. You handed off all does, of the IP. So. He doesn't listen to this anyway. <laughs> yeah, no. Right, uh, enough about us. I'm done talking. Thank you guys. Uh, have fun. Uh, I'm out of here. This is it. I'll see you tomorrow. Sayonara. Bye bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. Or no, it's not bye yet. It's uh, ready. Go. Oh, yeah. Ready. Break. Break. Ready, go. Break. <laughs> Break. The shoulders actually, I mean, I, we were texting yesterday, but I had more range of motion the next day than I had coming into surgery. That's awesome. So, yeah, it's been going really well. Um, like I was saying, uh, we ended up hooking up with a guy named Keith Barr out of Sacramento who does a bunch of research on tissue. Had some really yep. interesting stuff on, on uh, protein synthesis. And when I discussed the, you know, because my shoulder, even though, as you know, it's not a frozen shoulder, but that posterior capsule is so fibrous and thick. Um, that when I talked to him, he's like, you know, there's um, three types of loading on the shoulder. There's uh, shear, there's load, and there's compression. And compression is the worst you can do for a frozen shoulder. And I was like, man, I did all this voodoo flossing, like compression stuff, trying to break it up. And I think that accelerated it. So I started doing a bunch of PNF. And then I started going to one of the Arosti guys to do a bunch of myofascial release. And it's like night and day difference. Have you tried any dry needling on it? Yeah. Uh, Every any, day. Any no, the uh, the dry needling uh, didn't necessarily work. I mean, it's more like kind of the trigger point, but we did that. And uh, uh, like so for the first six weeks, I just kind of did a standard PT model. And then after that yeah. six weeks, I was like, you know what, uh, I'm going to start trying to look for something a little more unconventional. And um, the one thing that's been helping it tremendously is um, have you ever seen a bamboo bar? Do you know what that is? It's like yeah. it, it's actually it's a it's a bar that kind of it's made of bamboo and it flexes. And you hang kettlebells off of it, and I kind of do some isometric contractions and the oscillating. I'm not kidding you. That, like, when I go the next day and go to rehab, like, I have more range of motion. And the PNF stuff works unreal. Like, I'll, like, have, like, be at one range of motion, like, one or two, uh, like, fights on the PNF, and instantly it opens up. You know, the the oscillating makes total sense um, to me. We, uh, a couple of thoughts. We just had a a pitcher yesterday who um, he's about 18 months out from a slap repair in his shoulder. And he just has not been able to get back. Hasn't been able to get back. 
and then went out and just threw as hard as he could about a week ago. And he ended up basically tearing his capsule in the front. And when it tore, it bled out into the front and he had this hematoma sitting in front of his subscap. And we thought he had torn his pec minor off. But what that taught me is that ballistic type where you're getting some ballistic verberation, like you're saying, you can, you can stretch capsule. You can even tear capsule because we saw it yesterday. It took us, it was a fun case just because it, the way it presented was odd. So but, I, um, I was going to ask you when, um, when I was out during the surgery, were you able to get me to full range of motion? No, no. So it's, it's, that's really neat to see that you're getting it with the, after the injections and with the reverberation, because the capsule starts as like a, like a balloon. You know how compliant a balloon is that you're going to blow up or fill into a water balloon mm -hmm. and how you can easy it is to fill with air or water. And then imagine a shoulder where the cartilage is starting to wear down. It releases proteins that, that tighten up that capsule and that capsule changes from a water balloon to like a wine skin or a, like something made out of, you know, a hide or something. And it thickens too. And that's, that's the problem is that now your capsule is thick. The same with our thrower from yesterday, his capsule, cause he's been through so much with his shoulder is not a balloon anymore. It's like a, it's like leather. And so he goes out there and he tries to throw and with his whole kinetic chain, he can produce enough force and torque at his shoulder that he, he ruptured it and just popped it. Um, so, but like, even though I know that like uh, the cytokines and I kind of understand the science in terms of getting released and then it, the, the capsule gets fibrous and thick, but it's tissues theoretically, like, but I mean, I guess it's not standard tissue, but it should be able to regain uh, like pliability if you do, if there's, you know, ways to do that. You should be able to stretch it. Yeah. That's kind of what, what, uh, when we keep our on the podcast, I mean, that was what he was really, you know, like, Hey, like you can, uh, cause he, he had some really cool research where people had like holes in their Achilles and yeah. they were able to actually get the holes to fill in patellar tendons and stuff like that. And, uh, when I started talking to him about it, he's like, you know, that shear and then that load, um, the interesting thing is when I started doing the kettlebell or the, the bamboo bar with the oscillation, it was the funniest thing. Like as soon as I picked it up I, and as I was going through full range of motion on the bench and I stood up, I was like, man, the shoulder felt like night and day difference. And so then I kind of started just doing a bunch of sets and I got to like the seventh, eighth set. And as I picked it up, I did one rep and I was like, well, that was one too many. And then all of a sudden the next day, the shoulder tightened back up and then I had to kind of go through everything again and it's just, it, it's, uh, it's such a weird deal. Like the, the guys I've been going to are like, you know, it's, it's not a classic frozen shoulder because a, sh a frozen shoulder, it freezes all the way around. Yours yeah. is just his posterior capsule. Hit yourself with some oral uh, anti-inflammatories after you do that workout. Okay. Because, you know, you're, that's the double-edged sword of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Drugs like Aleve and ibuprofen, you know, Advil. Those are inhibit the first stages of that healing response and or that inflammation response. And so to keep that capsule from having an inflammatory response, hit yourself with 800 milligrams of, of Advil. Okay. Uh, and I would, you could even pre-treat, you know, pre-treat in the morning. If you're then late in the morning going to be doing that activity and take another one with lunch. So you and think Advil over Aleve or Tylenol? Oh yeah. Because Tylenol is acetaminophen, so yeah. it's not going to have the anti-inflammatory effect uh, in terms of the mechanism of action. Advil 
or a leave. The reason I like Advil better um, is totally just personal preference with my knee. Um, hmm. But either one's fine. With Aleve, you dose it twice a day. And with Advil, you have to dose it three times a day. So it's a little bit of a pain in the butt. Doc, are you more. sure like Advil is hasn't funded your party barge or something? Like in every Advil John <laughs> no, takes is like another all, gallon in the Evan Marie. I do have some disclosures, but it's not related to Advil. It would I, be I, a I, private jet to the Swiss Alps for him to go on his <laughs> ski trips. Let's um, let's do like let's. I'm just gonna dude Zach Morris time out. You know, you you guys are chatting like a, just a couple ribbing each other like old friends. <laughs> <laughs> let's get a little background for our listeners, uh, Doc. You know, uh, what do you do? And then, how, you know, how did you get there? And then how does John, how did John get to you type deal? And we'll just kind of see where that takes us. So I'm a sports surgeon and researcher at the Andrews Institute. And so what I focus on is sports injuries, surgery, and research on that front. I grew up in Auburn, Alabama, um, decided I should not go to undergrad there because if you stay in your hometown, you start to resent it too much. I went to undergrad at Vanderbilt Med School down in South Alabama and then went to residency at Wake Forest. And residency, I started getting involved in cell research. And I, I really shudder to say the word stem cell because it's just such a buzzword. But that's exactly what I got, it, got into in 2009. That landed me a fellowship at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado, because uh, Richard Stedman was very interested in, in stem cells and how these cells uh, can help us take our surgeries to the next level. Uh, in 2010, I interviewed here with Dr. Andrews, and we were sitting in the viewing room. So Andrews has sort of four ORs, ORs all around one central viewing room so that you can game plan what's going on. And uh, we were sitting in that viewing room in between a case, and he said, Adam, you know, the, the first great advancement in sports medicine was the arthroscope, which is that instrument that lets us put a camera inside a joint and look around. The next one's going to be this. We know biology. We know stem cells are going to be part of our game. And so that kind of landed me a job here. And I was charged with getting our research off the ground here. Well, it was already, we already had work going on, but around cells. And so landed here in 2012, um, got a grant from the city for $350,000 to build a facility to research and store these cells. And then we got that off the ground in 2015 and then got a grant from the state of Florida for $1 million uh, for 1819. And then they dropped it to 250,000 uh, for the past year. And we're going at them for 2.4 million next year. So all in all, orth orthopedic sports surgeon turned researcher by, <laughs> by my mentors. Ran into John because uh, he knows uh, uh, Dr. Stedman took care of his knee and uh, Stedman's a good dude, and uh, I just hope to carry a little bit of his torch going forward. Yeah, with orthopedic surgeons, you're kind of like, uh, at least in the NFL, there's two schools, either like kind of a Stedman guy or a uh, like a Andrews guy. And I just had met Dr. Stedman, and, um, you know, uh, he was – as, as Dr. Ernst knows, uh, like when you meet Stedman, it's kind of like uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi coming to talk to you. And it's like, you'll be fine. Trust me. You're like, I believe this dude. I mean, he, he, uh, I did sur or he did surgery on me on a Monday and I played on a Sunday and then I tore all up my knee and came back and he just like shook his head and he's like, let's have to fix you again. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, thanks doc. And you're like, nice little, <laughs> like, I can't believe Obi-Wan. So yeah, when I met, uh, Dr. Ernst through Ken Ford, when I went down to speak at the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition, 
as we were sitting there, we just got paired up next to each other. And, and uh, you know, when he mentioned he was involved with Dr. Stedman and what he was doing, I was like, man, I got this shoulder. <laughs> and, uh, and then it started like a couple years of us like reaching out. And then I went down and he looked at it and he's like, you know, um, uh, I thought, you know, and the big t thing we were waiting on was that was the microscope or was the, uh, uh, the nanoscope. And so we waited, uh, you know, two years to this thing get approved. And then I go to finally get to surgery and he gets in there and he's like, couldn't use the nanoscope. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I was able to use it a little bit. I was able to get it in a joint. Uh, John's joint is, is progressed in terms of change that there's very little space within the joint. And our normal arthroscope is, is five millimeters in diameter. And so five millimeters is about like this. And then the nanoscope is two millimeters in diameter. And so it's a quarter of the size. It's like a needle. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, optics have, have progressed. You know, the chips that they can use are amazing. So it's really just a chip on a stick. And you stick the chip in and it gives you 4D uh, view. And uh, the guy who, who runs Arthrex, and I do need to disclose that Arthrex, um, I do research with them. I speak for them. They're a great company. And you got to work with industry in order to push things forward. Y'all know that you can't build anything unless you've got an industry partner who's got some clout. And so um, they're a good partner with us. But Reinhold Schmieding, he's an amazing dude. He's first generation American. His parents are from Germany. He started a company in Munich, Germany, that now is worth $4 billion in the orthopedic world. And it is the king of sports medicine. But he has such vision and has built his company to the point where when he says something, then I listen because he he sits around all day long and thinks about orthopedic technologies, whether they be the scope or the instruments that we use for the scope or whether it be biologics, too. And so he does that 24 752. That's my night and weekend job because I still have to you know see patients and make medical decisions, treat patients and operate. And so he is a better person to ask about the future of orthopedics than I am because he gets to focus 24 seven 52 on it. And now it's my night and weekend job, but he says that the nanoscope is the next best thing, John. And he says that one day our, our all of our arthroscopes will be nanoscopes. Oh. That instead of the five millimeters, we're going down to the, the two millimeters. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I had, um, However it worked, man, like I had uh, zero pain. I mean, I came out and I also think that the nerve block, um, I, I think we've discussed this. I, I looked at a bunch of research that talked about opiates, uh, like the tissue healing quality over uh, with opiates and without. And it, it showed like these um, like the microscope of, the, of what the tissue looks like under healing under opiates. And it's all like kind of mashed up. And then they showed what the tissue looks like when it has no opiates. And it was like nice and fibrous and it laid down straight. So the fact that we got to do a nerve block, which was killer because, you know, I had zero pain coming out and I had total range of motion. And that day I went in there, you know, they didn't really want to do much. And you got on the phone and yelled at that dude a little bit and they went back in there. And you're like, dude, take advantage while he's numb. See if we can get as much range of motion as possible. And I'm in there like yelling at these dudes. It was like, <laughs> it was, it was yeah. funny. They were probably like, who the fuck is this guy? And I was like, hey, dude. I don't feel anything. Stretch this motherfucker. And these guys <laughs> yeah. were kind of like, uh, like kind of like, <laughs> it's it just, it, it was funny. And, um, but uh, yeah, that nerve block. Uh, and what's amazing is like, I mean, I, I was rehabbing immediately had full rate or was really fighting for range of motion and had way less pain and more range of motion that next day than I had going in. So however you were able to do it, it just was extremely non-invasive. 
nerve blocks are the game changer, John. They they let us push people uh, sooner, quicker. Um, so we see everybody post-operative day one. That's a Stedmanism and an Andrewsism. So what's cool is, you know, when I was with Stedman, I picked up certain things and I saw certain ways of doing things. And then when I started here, I saw very similar ways of treating people and ways of, of doing things. And one thing that both people do is see all your patients on post-operative day one in PT. So that you can yell at your PTs if you need to. You can tell your PTs exactly what to do and you can show them and you can communicate just one-on-one -on -one, face to face. And those are some keys of both of their successes. You were right on about Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, Stedman, he, he just knows how to connect and how to really communicate and how to love on people. Yeah. And um, one thing about Stedman, Stedman will make big statements and he'll say, he'll say things like, you know, Adam, this is probably the worst year of snow in the history of Vail. And then he'd like think and reflect up to himself and like look up and he'd pause for a good 10 seconds where he's just like looking at the ceiling and he'd come back like, yep, yeah, it is. Like he cataloged <laughs> everything in the history of Vail and his brain, he cataloged it all. And he was like, yep, confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, uh, after he worked on me, I was playing in Kansas City and we had the season opener in Denver. And as soon as the game, like the, the, uh, the buzzer goes off, you know, like I remember we were on the field and I kind of like look around, you're kind of like looking for the, the tunnel, whatever. And I just see this, uh, like older guy with a, you know, Denver Broncos, uh, jacket, like literally like strolling on the field, the first one. And it's Stedman. He walks right over and gives me a hug. And he's like, it's so good to see you. I was like, like I was like, I, yeah, no, just, just a really special guy. And, uh, um, you know, like that just speaks volumes about him, you know, that he's like, I was watching you. I was so proud of how you're doing and like, you know, walked right over. So it was, uh, yeah, no, he's, I remember when I, I got an email from, is it crystal? Yeah. Yeah. So I got an email, uh, from crystal that he was retiring. So I sent him a bottle of champagne and like a thank you. And, uh, I just told him, like, I guess I can't go back to the NFL. You've retired. And so he was funny. So, no, he's a great dude. Andrews is the same way, you know, and you know, the, what you learn and what you get is that, you know, your, your patients are, are your, your pride and joy. When they're successful, you're successful. When you see somebody achieve something on the field after these injuries, it just it, – that's, what, that's what's amazing about what we get to do is that – you know, they did it. And it's, it's almost as if just as proud as seeing, uh, seeing a child accomplish something, you know, I, my wife and I, we, it took us a little bit of time in terms of having a little kiddo. And, um, I told her for a long time, I was like, honey, you know, I've got kids. <laughs> I got a lot of them, you know, <laughs> they're running around playing football on Friday nights, you know, and some of them on Saturdays, you know? And, and so, uh, it's, it's fun. You know, that's, that's why we do it is because if we can, if we can help you overcome something that's, that is tragic when injury occurs, then that's how we truly live. And it, uh, is there ever going to be a point with the biologics that um, like you talked about, like the reduction of joint space and obviously you know, there's some uh, you know, cartilage and you know, um, arthritis in my shoulder, which, you know, I don't know how you get done playing 10 years in the NFL without it. So I, I just wonder, is, is there ever anything, and I know you're, you're super conservative, kind of like Stedman was, like, it, do you see, foresee something in the future with like biologics in terms of like being able to regenerate joint space or like joints? Yes. Um, and that's what got me keyed into this. Uh, you know, in 2009, 
uh, an individual came and gave us a grand rounds at Wake Forest about using cells to augment a cartilage repair procedure. And so cartilage is the white substance on the end of our bones. When you have a cartilage injury, it does not have a great blood supply. So it does not have access to the normal cells and elements that are circulated in our bodies to help with healing. So it's healing response sucks. And so he had been adding a surgery developed by Stedman with cells. So doing an arthroscopic surgery where there's no cartilage in areas, drilling down into the bone to get some marrow access, and then injecting cells into that joint at multiple time points, kind of like your lawn. Like if you're missing a big piece of grass, you till the ground, then you plant some seeds. Then you come back a week, week later and you fertilize it and you keep fertilizing and watering it till it grows good grass. So that's the concept that he'd been developing. And the cell source that he was studying is the same cell source as bone marrow transplant. And so it's the same cells that they're using for that process. And his cartilage is pretty darn good. When you look at it underneath the microscope, you're like, hey, that looks pretty much like normal cartilage. And so that is something that we've been developing since with him, and, and he's the pioneer of it since 2009. And we just closed a phase 2B study with the FDA here on our campus and at his campus to bring that to our, to our patients. But that is another tool in the toolbox. And biologics, we're developing a golf bag. You know, we've got a putter and we've got a driver right? We've got a knee replacement and we've got, you know, some steroid injections, right? And then we need the whole golf bag because if you're 35 years old and your knee looks like mine does, I'm too young for a knee replacement, but I need something to get me better cartilage because I want to run for the next 30 years. I want to ski for the next 30 years. I want to play with my kids. And right now we've got nothing in that bag. And that's a double-edged sword too, because there's a lot of where there's an opportunity there to develop something. There's also a lot of opportunists trying to sell things too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> no, so, the, uh, you know, and, and I know we, we talked at uh, great length about everything with the stem cells and with the research. And it's, uh, it's pretty interesting uh, for us to have conversations and you kind of pointed me in the right direction to look at it and then see some of the claims that, you know, people are making like, um, you know, the fact that like they're in like, I, I understand the science that if uh, you take chondrocyte cells and those chondrocytes, which are, you know, cartilage cells and you put them into a cartilage environment, but taking like embryonic stem cells and hoping that they convert to chondrocytes, like it, it just, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of steps that, that goes through that, you know, and like, you know, since we can't culture things outside the body and inject them, I mean, there's, it seems like a lot of like the wild west. It is the Wild West. And, um, you know, with development, you got to think like a pyramid. And the base of that pyramid is animal studies and Petri dish studies. You know, you do things in Petri dishes and in animals to prove out ideas and concepts and see if they work and then prove if they're safe. And then once you do animal studies, then you do small human trials and like 10 patients, you try it and see if it's safe. And then after that, then you do randomized controlled trial or some kind of comparative study where you take one way of doing something and you compare it to your new way of doing it and seeing if it works. And then you prove it's reproducible, meaning it worked at one spot. It worked in, in Gulf Breeze, but is it going to work in Gulf Breeze and Atlanta and Birmingham and then Washington, D.C. and in New York City? You got to prove it's reproducible. 
because people are different in different places. I mean, we know that from the coronavirus. And so you got to develop things like a pyramid before you then have a statement that this is going to help someone's problem. And the problem is that people want to short circuit that, that development piece and they want to throw spaghetti at a wall. And so they, because you can market things, you know, stem cells are very marketable right now and people want to claim all types of different things are a stem cell technology, but even that term itself is not well-defined. The first cells we cared about was taking some of your bone marrow and putting it into a Petri dish and putting it into an incubator and waiting four weeks and seeing what grows. And then what grows, seeing what kind of markers those cells have on them and then seeing if those cells can become a cartilage cell and a bone cell and a fat cell. And then that is what, when people say stem cells, they get so caught up in that concept that we have to be talking about a cell cultured from your bone marrow. But what we're finding is that there's cells all over our body with stem capabilities. Meaning I've, we've done studies looking at the effusion within your knee after an ACL. And I know that there's st cells with stem capability in that fluid. We also know that we can get you to exercise. And when we get you to exercise, there's cells with stem capability that are mobilized to your bloodstream. And so really you're are a warehouse of cells and in your bone marrow is where these cells are the most immature. And when you get stressed, your body makes more of those cells and they spill into your bloodstream so they can go all throughout your body. And then they go into the tissue and then they can do stem things. They can become, they have stem capabilities to help with tissue repair. And so, you know, everybody gets caught up on one cell source as the cell source, but there's all kinds of cells with stem capabilities. It's just proven how to get them and how to use them and make sure they help people. And so you all got me down a rabbit hole on that subject and I could do it. Awesome. Just say. keep going. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, um, uh, I really wish our podcast, like, uh, we tend to run like kind of an organic podcast. Like I was saying, like, we're just more interested in the conversation. Whereas, you know, you sometimes go on podcasts and people just ask you a series of questions. Um, I think the stem cell thing is really fascinating. And I remember probably 10 years ago, like I thought stem cells were going to alter the trajectory of the world. I thought they were going to be able to regrow limbs. And to say that like the effects are underwhelming over the last 10 years is kind of, uh, yeah, like yeah. I, I feel very underwhelmed uh, by the stem cell. I mean, if anything, you know, when you tap, um, you tap my hip, pulled out the marrow, spun it down, injected it back, uh, that, you know, that one has been shown to increase growth and healing. But you're taking bone marrow, uh, you know, and spinning it down and, you know, injecting it back in, into a, um, you know, into a damaged joint. I always wonder if, like, there was something worse going on in the body with, the, you know, even though you're doing it kind of localized, you know, uh, opposed from IVs. I mean, it's, um, yeah, just underwhelming other than that type of piece. But yeah, I mean, it's if you go back and look at like some of the claims that people make, it's like, like it's underwhelming, John, because everybody's <laughs> throwing spaghetti at a wall. You know what I mean? No one's really taken the time to develop these technologies from the whole pyramid approach. Now, with that being said, there are technologies that are going through that process. And so you're underwhelmed now and you should be, but in, and we're going to get there. Yeah. These cells do have value. And yeah, so like, week, what's the potential doc? So for instance, this week we've been studying the monocyte 
And so a monocyte, that word just means a cell with one nucleus, that's a white blood cell. And within your blood, you got red blood cells that carry around oxygen. You got white blood cells that tend to be involved in your immune system, meaning how you respond to things and affecting your body's response to that. And those white blood cells, one of the cells is a monocyte. And monocytes start in your bone marrow, then they mature and get released to your bloodstream. And then monocytes, we always just thought they could become just one type of white blood cell that could engulf others. But we've been culturing them in our lab to see how much game they have. And today we were checking assays and I posted them on Instagram. One of them was we've been able to push a monocyte into a cartilage cell and it can make cartilage. We've been able to push a monocyte into a fat cell and it can take make fat. We've been taking a monocyte and pushing into a bone cell, make it make bone. And now into a nerve cell and make nerve stuff, neurons. I don't know as much about neurons as I know about bones. And then also endoderm. An endoderm is what your GI tract and your respiratory tract is. So what that means is the monocyte people used to say is not really, doesn't, isn't a stem cell. Well, it's clear that a monocyte is a stem cell. And I think that the monocytes are just how your cells from your bone marrow that have stem capability move around your whole body. And when they get into your bloodstream, they change their shape a little bit and they change their markers. And then when they get into the tissue, the tissue is more hypoxic and it's clear that they change into cells that have stem capability. And now not only are they multipotent, multipotent just means they can become three different, they can become cells of one cell line from one germ layer in an embryo. Pluripotent means they can become any cell from all three cell embryonic cell lines. So these are pluripotents. Now, the, where this, why, how is this, why is this important, Adam? Because I can get a whole lot of monocytes from you easily. And I can do it in two different ways. So hang on right there, Doc, because this is going to get good. And we're going to pause real quick for a little bit of sponsor message. That little ditty and the sound of my smooth, sensual, yet strong voice means you're about halfway through our chat and you've earned yourself a little brain break brought to you by our friends at Train Heroic. And I know you're like, Callie, your voice is smooth, sensual, yet strong, but what does that have to do with Train Heroic? And the answer is it doesn't. But here's why we at Power Athlete think it's important that you're aware of what Train Heroic is capable of. Their whole jam is to empower you to train without limits. Sound familiar? That means that you can take your little gym business or side hustle and absolutely blow the fucking doors off of it. Their immersive training solutions allow you to train athletes from New York to Nicaragua. And FYI, if you consult a map, those places are really far from each other. Gym space is not an issue. Distance, not an issue. And scheduling, well, we already know that time is an illusion, but it's even more illusion-y with Train Heroic. With Train Heroic, you can provide an engaging, flexible, and affordable training experience for your people wherever they are on this flat earth. They provide everything you need to look like a pro, even if you're a complete Luke Summers, and transition into this brave new world of online training. The best part is that they give you a fortnight of free usage. That's two weeks for anyone not born in the 1700s. And when that wraps up, you can keep the party going for the price of a Chipotle burrito. But wait, there's more. A burrito without guac. And you pay only as your business gains grow. 
The whole crew uses Train Heroic and has done so for years. There's a reason we are taking the time to mention it, and it's not because they promised us a party barge or a suitcase full of collectible beanie babies, uh, baby tigers, or anything else that you deem to be extremely valuable. It's simply because we like them, we use them, and we believe in what they can do for your business and your athletes. Power Athlete has grown by 50% for the last four years because of Train Heroic. And in the words of one of my old coaches, you can't argue with results. Head over to trainheroic.com, click on the free trial button in the upper right-hand corner, and get started today. Now back to the show. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, with the exciting reveal Monocytes. On monocytes. So, <laughs> so how are we getting them? Exercise. Man, when you get that endorphin release, and we've been studying BFR. So yes. everyone wants to say blood flow restriction just causes a growth hormone spike, right? That your pituitary. Uh, yaddy, it does yaddy. a lot more than that, though. I mean, you the, got uh, it. Yeah, it does a lot more than that. It gives you a systemic mobilization of cells, too. Yeah. We've studied that in three different studies. We used the VASPR machine. The Vasper machine is four limb occlusion with high intensity training. Um, it's a, it's uh, next. We've used uh, we've used two different BFR studies uh, too, and you have a systemic boom. And that systemic boom, I think it's a lot like the endorphin release you get when you get that runner's high. You know when you've done a workout and you're just like. <gasps> And you're just like, yeah, you're jacked. <laughs> uh, Doc, I got one for you. Uh, I'll do BFR on my arms and my legs at the same time. And then we get on and we do uh, like echo or assault bike sprints. And uh, yeah. one day as I was doing them, I just like laid down on the ground. And Luke's like, are you okay? I'm like, mm -hmm. arms and legs, bad idea. Just like an old tired elephant. <laughs> like I just taken the, the hike of its life and it's like, I'm good for right now. Yeah, I just kind of like walked and just kind of kneeled down and fell on my side. And I'm, he's like, you all right? I'm like, no, no, no. I fucked myself up. And uh, so I know exactly what you're talking about. That is the, that's the, the bloom. That's a cell systemic response when you do that. And what happens, two things. When you see a stress, your body makes more of those cells and, and mobilizes them to your bloodstream. Then as that stress goes down, they get filtered out in your spleen and your liver. And they're basically just filtered there because your, your blood volume isn't circulating as fast, right? Instead of a big, you know, big river flowing, you just got a stream flowing. Then all of a sudden you get out and you exercise again and you increase your circulating blood volume again, you've increased the circulation through those filters and the cells come off, come off the filters and then they're released. So they're, they're recycled within your whole system. So it, BFR. It, is this similar to the ACS? Uh, do you remember the, the ACS with the, uh, the interleukin blockers with the pearls and the blood? Remember we had that interesting conversation you're talking about that they were harvesting, uh, like taking the blood to spin it down after putting them in like some form of stressful situation. Yeah. So that's the same deal, right? So that's Peter Velling. Um, yeah. Peter Velling in Germany is Reginekine. And Reginekine is what Kobe was using to help with keep his knee where he needed it to be to, to stay active. And um, uh, also there was, a, there was another athlete who was over there and he called Philippon uh, one day when I was in the OR with Philippon. So I, I kind of just heard what Philippon was saying. And long and short of it, yes, Peter Welling was exercising people. He would put them in a hot room and have them work out as hard as they could. And he would have them go sit in a cryo chamber 
and then he would repeat that and then he would get their blood after that. And so he was systemically mobilizing those cells to their bloodstream and then pulling out the blood. So then he had more monocytes. And then uh, I get it. Then you take that more monocyte rich blood and he was incubating it on glass beads, yeah. which causes them to preferentially release interleukin one receptor antagonist, what which is too fuck? hard to say. IRAP. Yeah. IRAP is much catchier. Uh, yeah. ACS. But um, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, there's like a, it's almost like these little pearls and then they mix the blood and they spin it down similar like a PRP mm-hmm. and then it reduces inflammation. It's a. Uh, it's pretty interesting that that element uh, they never put into the research. So the research was underwhelming, and this guy was getting these like fantastic results. And then when you look at the research, it's kind of like ah, nobody could replicate it. And it was funny as I was talking to Doctor Ants, he said that, and I'm like, holy shit! Yeah, that was uh, yeah, because I was like, I, I'd actually had researched that one mm-hmm. because I I'm know gonna, I know the guy that you're talking about. I'm not going to name him on here. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you another trick to that, John. Um. You know, and part of these are are real technologies, right? But part of emerging technologies, too, is uh, the newness of a technology and the expense of a technology. And it is clear that placebo effect is magnified dependent upon how much you spend on an intervention. That's interesting. So if it costs me $250,000, it's going to work. If it costs me 10 bucks, it ain't going to work. You got it, man. And so, but I'm not saying, I'm just saying you got to roll all these different variables of why something works and, and, and unspool all of them. And so I've been unspooling the exercise component of it and studying that because that is key. The exercise is a, is a big time component of why that works and probably why it's not been reproducible in other people's hands because that's the secret sauce that Peter probably keeps to himself. Sure. And then also if you spend $4,000 on a, on an intervention, it does and magnify how much it's got to work in your head. What, uh, what's the effective dose? I mean, when we did, uh, you know, we started working with the guys from Katsu global, geez, almost like five or six years ago and have gone through and looked at all the different BFR, uh, devices. Um, I had a cool opportunity to actually sit with Dr. Sato, the guy from Katsu global that, you know, did all of his research on that. So I got to interview him. It was pretty neat. He wrote me some programming and talked me through all like how he found it, how he discovered it, uh, you know, the results that they had and like how, uh, you know, he was working with the, with the speed skaters in Japan and they weren't like talking about it at all so they could keep an advantage. So it was killer. And I got to, um, I drove up to LA and interviewed him through a translator, but it was pretty fascinating, like looking at like the effective dose. And that's something that I've uh, I've seen people like be like, Hey, as much as like one time a week, uh, five times a week. I mean, within your research or what you've seen, like, is there an effective dose in terms of the rehab perspective? It depends on what you're trying to do with it. And so we had an aha moment one day when I had two different volunteers that we were testing. And one of them was a pretty, pretty solid looking athlete. And he was just kind of, it was when we were using the Vasper machine and he was just cruising. And then he got off and we drew his blood and we looked at the cell content and it was not impressive. He did not bloom. The next guy was less active. You know, his BMI was higher. He's just, you know, not as not an athlete. And he had to stop, you know, halfway into it because he was about to vomit. And he had an amazing bloom. And so the answer to that question is, if you're trying to get a bloom, then you have to do something that your system is not used to and has not seen before. 
and it just overwhelms your your sympathetic nervous system so that you they think you're going to die and that's when it mobilizes cells to your circulation and so you really got to exert until you're about to vomit if you want a systemic release of cells with that being said conditioned athletes produce more cells in their bone marrow than non-conditioned athletes so if you're just doing something every day from an aerobic standpoint you're turning over your bone marrow more and so what's effective i don't know the answer to that if i want to make someone bloom i tell my so we did this yesterday so i've I've been studying exercise mobilized PRP, you know, and I'm not incubating it because I can't, because if I incubate it overnight, then I'm more than minimally manipulating it and the FDA starts to care. But if instead I just manipulate the patient before I get the blood, they don't care about that. <laughs> so, so I, we put BFR on someone's legs and we work them out until they're about to vomit. And then they come up and they get their blood drawn for a PRP. Hmm. And that's going to be a monocyte rich PRP. You know, and so what's effective for that? I just tell my therapist to put BFR on them and make them about want to vomit. Well, <laughs> if uh, any of you guys listening um, have not done blood flow restricted training, right, right. Uh, we've been doing it for years. And it's, uh, I think, like mentally, having never done it going in that first day when they did it to us like absolutely shattered me into a million pieces now yes. like like you've done it enough to where like not that you're conditioned for it but like you know like hey you know capillary refill and you're like pressing your fingers and you know like you're looking for all the telltale signs of had i gone too hard can i do this but that first time we cranked it up and just like about killed ourselves and like i've never been able to replicate that like mm -hmm. that effect i think there's a picture it was old in the old um the old gym. Power athlete. Yeah, we were doing I'm lunges. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the picture I'm talking yeah, about. Like, we, it looks, if you were, it's a still, and you're like, if you just could push play, you'd probably see the vomit start to spill out. It was a bad, bad day. Yeah, we, we hooked up the bands, and then we had like 20-pound chains around our neck, and we just started doing walking lunges until somebody quit. Mm -hmm. And uh, like the look on Luke's face, is he's like looking up with a, he's got a hoodie on because it was cold. He's like looking up and the look of death on his face. Mm -hmm. And I know the exact picture because I remember thinking like my yeah. back was to you and I was feeling it just as bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll find that picture. <laughs> well, how do you all set the dose? And what I mean by that is, yeah. so I started with the big block katsu, right? Yeah. And now I've got the little bitty smaller katsu, but it's still, you know, you set your skew. And so, I mean, I don't know what to set them on. And I had John Doolittle. Uh, I love him. He's a good dude. Yep. Uh, he came and gave me a whole tutorial on it one day, and and now it still just seems too complicated. Uh, what do y'all do? In terms I of don't think that they understand it the way they say they understand it. <laughs> and I'll tell you this: like we um, and and so the way that we've done it is, um, well, how do I put this? Uh, like the Katsu Global system is is cool. Uh, it's really expensive. So it was hard for us to push that out and convince people to spend five to eight grand on this system. So yep. we were using like there's a company, I think it's like Lifting Lab that has these straps and they sent them to me. And I was like, hey, man, uh, you need to take a bleach pen and put lines on these so that we can figure out the dose. And so where we started was like, what's the minimal dose? I just want to feel like it's snug. And so we set it at one line and then every workout kind of like almost like a linear progression. We started adding more and more dose to it. Uh, and then what we found with the Katsu and the, the Katsu Global, um, we would start at 200, go to three, and we just kind of start upping it. Then the problem was the band started exploding. 
and we couldn't get them to code pressure. And then the other one was, is I would do one set, then I would come plug it back in to see if it maintained pressure, and it didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would set it to, to like, you know, three, 400, go do the set, plug it back in, and it would be at, like, 150. And my comment to him was, like, if this thing is not giving me consistent pressure, then I have no way to, to replicate and do control on this. Mm-hmm. And so it was really frustrating. So then he kept bringing me more and more bands, and they'll try this one, try this one. And the thing that I realized is just as a big, strong dude, the things that we were doing, and I think it might be a little different if you're a 120-pound woman. Like elderly population yeah, like a, or, an elderly or rehab population. population right. But, like, we're going to, like, push this thing. And when I got it to, like, 500, which we had done a linear progression up, the bands just started exploding. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ah. So I, I know that they were looking for better technology. And at that point, we just started going. There was a... Um, B Strong was a guy who was also working it, with them. Like the hand pump. Yeah, with, with the hand pump, which I liked. The problem was those those bands started blowing out when we started getting too much pressure in it. So mm-hmm. I, I think... Um, yeah, and then what we'll tell our guys, because we do put it in the daily programming, is you know it's about tolerability and just kind of, like John said, you should try to do more than yesterday, whether it's time or tension or both. Um, but then we'd basically prescribe like max reps every 30 seconds on whatever, you know, mostly a hypertrophy approach, um, but to the training. Yeah. It's, it's creating that hypoctic deal. I, I just remembered what, uh, the one thing that really stuck me that Dr. Sato said was, um, I don't care what the weight is. I don't care what the movement is. I don't care what the band pressure is. As long as you go to failure, it works. Because I asked him, you know, that was my first question. Like, how tight do I want it? How much pressure? What rep range is what this? And he was like, it has to be to failure. If you can get one more rep, it's the next rep. And I was like, man, didn't Arnold Schwarzenegger say that same thing? <laughs> and so he was like, the, the trick was, um, he also said, uh, for, if you're doing a ton, no more than 20 minutes. Uh, 30 minutes if you're a little more untrained. So he yeah, gave me parameters. monitoring capillary refills. Well. Yeah, that was the big one. Like as long as you can press your finger and continue to see it turn white, if you press it and it doesn't turn white, then you know that it's Or there. it doesn't refill after Yeah, it doesn't white. refill, then that you've done too much. Um, that was one. Uh, the other one we were doing is we were doing arms, legs, and calves. And when I told him that we were doing calves, he just did this. And I was like, how do you know? He's like, we tried it. It didn't end well. He's like, just do your legs because you want the draining effect. So uh, he was he was really pretty interesting. And the one thing that kind of blew me away was uh, when he came to interview or when I went to interview him, I'm looking at this dude and he's uh, he's super fit. Yeah, he's jacked. And he like unbuttoned his shirt and pulled it in his like, you know, his clavicle and his chest. And I'm like, I asked the interpreter, I'm like, how old is this dude? And she's like, he's 72. And I was like, yeah, I was like. Okay, he's this, dead. yeah, That's he's, him. I mean, he, he, he like unbuttoned his shirt and had like washboard abs. And I mean, he, <laughs> he like, I, I was like, no. And then he showed me some pictures of him as a bodybuilder. And, um, he was like, I locked out like a thousand pound bench press. And I didn't necessarily understand what the fuck he was talking about there, but, uh, looked like seeing how physically fit he was. And then talking to him about the training and understanding the methodology and how he created it, uh, really gave me some interesting insight and, uh, I think a lot of that gets lost because when I went to go talk to the guys from Katsu Global, I was like, have you picked this dude's brain? And I don't feel like they had dug in deep enough to find every nook and cranny they needed. I love how, but one thing John JD told me is that Katsu says that you got to start and end every workout with Katsu doing these. Like he talks about the breathing and just like something as simple as clenching your fists and letting them go. That's a Satsuism. Did he talk to you about that? Yeah, he talked about internal inclusion. 
Did he, uh, I, I think that was the thing he talked about, that you can create internal inclusion by creating pressure and closing joint angles. That was another interesting one. I, I, I'm, that makes sense to me because, you know, when we see things like compartment syndrome, exertional compartment syndrome in runners, that's because the actual act of, of overworking your muscles, you know, does increase the pressure of those compartments. So it makes sense that when you tense up your muscles, you're going to increase the, not to a crazy amount, the pressure within each compartment. And then if you're modifying venous, if venous occlusion, you're applying venous occlusion, it makes sense. So I, I've seen his body of work. If you go on their website, um, yeah. he's got like 30 articles on this. Like he's yeah. done a lot of research. That, hats off to him because he's approached it scientifically and uh, he's, he's given us a lot to work with there. And, and I mean, uh, I, I think he, the story he told me was he was a skier and he broke his leg. And uh, or he broke his like lower. I, I can't remember if it was his tib, fib, or what he broke. But um, they had a manual transmission, and he was the only one who could drive the manual to get them home. So what he did is he took uh, like a like a stick, and he did like kind of like a tourniquet, and he was like you know tying it up to try to you know like reduce the pain or whatnot, so he could drive the manual clutch, mm -hmm. and then got back. and I, I forgot, but then they went and they did um, like in Japan. I want to say they don't do surgery; they have a way to manipulate bones. Uh, so he went to like a, like I guess their version of an osteopath. So he didn't go for surgery. He had a guy go set the bone. They did x-rays and like he did this whole thing. And like when the guy went back six weeks later, the, the leg had healed at like this great, you know, greater rate than what they had seen before. And then he asked him what he'd been doing. And he, that was where the occlusion kind of first popped up that there was something with, um, you know, restricting venous blood flow. He didn't have as much atrophy of his muscles and of his thigh because he'd been doing BFR and just muscle and quad sets. Yep. And so he'd done... He'd done occlusion, done some quad sets. And when they took the cast off, they're like, wow. You know, usually when we take the cast off, people's legs completely atrophy, but yours isn't. Mm -hmm. And then John was telling me, I, I think I read this somewhere else, that he got the original idea from, and this may be true or not true, from prayers and that he was Buddhist. And so when he would pray and he got up from praying, he said he had a lot of the same sensations as after he'd just done a big leg workout. And yeah, so like his, his legs would fall asleep in that prayer position. I do recall that. Well, he, he also claimed why Japanese people have large calves was from the kneeling. And he felt that that like that constant kneeling was uh, was building the calf muscles in like an occlusion way. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh. we we do have a recording of this doc. And so I, I can dig and try to pass it along to you. It, the audio quality is not. Well, we were in a, in, in a hotel. We went up there yeah. to interview them, and they were supposed to put us in, like, a room, and, like, the room was taken. So we interviewed him, like, in the lobby, and, like... Uh, Just on, like, an open mic, right? Yeah, yeah. it sounds... A lot of background. Yeah, it, it, it was super impactful for me, because I got to go ask him all these questions, and when I got home, I was all excited for these guys to listen, and it's like, hey, you want a cup of coffee? <laughs> you know, we're like, oh, shit. And then the uh, translator was speaking really silent, and he was... It was just... It was a mess, but it was a great experience. Cool. Good man. Good um, Doc, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about ACLs. Um, yep. We had Tim Hewitt on the podcast, and he's done a ton of research on mechanisms for ACLs. And I thought it was a really pretty amazing conversation. But I wanted to talk, uh, I mean, I'm sure the amount of ACLs that you've done is, and, you know, Dr. Andrews is probably, uh, you know, un, un, uh, uncountable. But um, just some of like the ACL surgeries, like what you're seeing in terms of like, uh, like, 
new graphs, new technology, how they're done, and more importantly, are they really necessary? Yes. Uh, the first question, are they necessary? And that depends. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if you've got an 18-year-old football player who tears his ACL and he's going to go back to cutting and pivoting on a football field, he 100% needs his ACL. If I tore my ACL today, I would not get it fixed. Uh, and But I'm a very different person than that 18-year-old football player. And, and so I counsel people about that every day, but people don't necessarily want to hear that. I still fight the good fight of telling them that, uh, but 90% of people say, I don't care, give me a new ACL. And so uh, there is research, there is evidence that if you took a cohort, a group of people, and half of them got ACL and half of them were treated non-operatively with neuromuscular training, that they would have equal outcomes in terms of what level of activity they got back to and how satisfied they were with their knee. Now that specific study that I'm alluding to was done in one of the Norwegian, it was either Norway or Sweden or or so a different cohort than our cohort, right? But then here in the United States, if you take say a cohort in Pensacola, Florida, you know, and I tell them that 90% of them still want me to reconstruct their ACL, you know, because they say, well, that's a great story, Dr. Anz, but Adam, but give me a new ACL anyway. You know, okay, and trying to convince someone to say, hey, and we call people who could cope without an ACL copers. And not everybody's a coper. And it depends on, you know, some people, when you watch a move, they look like a baby giraffe moving, right? And then some people, when you watch a move, they look like a leopard. So some people's neuromuscular ability to be an athlete and to move in space is just better than others. And those are the people who are more likely to be copers. And even when you try to tell someone, hey, you just tore your ACL, you should consider working with a therapist for six weeks on neuromuscular training and proprioception and functional movement patterns because you may be a coper and you may not need an ACL reconstruction. They still tell me to reconstruct their ACL on Tuesday. <laughs> so yes, your first point is true. And I still fight that good fight and tell people, one of my, one of my good friends tore his ACL in front of me last January on the ski scope and I skied down. I saw him fall. And I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. Oh, <laughs> I no. skied down. And he was like, yeah, I think I broke something. I was like, yeah, yeah, me too. And sure enough. Is that your medical opinion? You're like, I, th- I, uh, I heard the explosion from, uh, you know, 10 feet away. He, he tore his ACL, um, but we've been treating him non-op and he's doing fine. And so now he's a 30, um, he's a 41 year old lawyer. And so he's not an 18 year old running back. And so that's kind of the long answer for, do we need reconstruction? And it is absolute. I mean, what do y'all think on, on that lines? And I, part I of- a, I'm sorry. I got a real good friend who had tore ACL volleyball player. And now she was allotted surgery, but with COVID they canceled all surgeries. So now it's, it's cool to keep in touch and watch her train on her Instagram she's getting her movement back and I think she's still going to do surgery, but she's back to kettlebell swings and finding unique ways and just documenting live her and her apartment, getting her, her movement back, her groove back. So I, I tore my ACL in 96, uh, when I was a sop or sorry, I tore cartilage in 96. Uh, they went in to scope my knee and the doctor found I didn't have an ACL. So I had, I had torn it at some point 
they didn't wake me up and not give me the option. They just fixed it, used the middle third of the patellar tendon. And um, they, they rushed the surgery. Like when we were on with Dr. Hewitt um, going through like the, you know, the effects of how long at like three months uh, they were pushing me to come back. Like, like basically like you're a malinger if you're not healed in three months. Right. Like six months, like my knee was still swelling. I was still having problems. Tendonitis, the whole deal. And they're like treating me like it's my fault. And as I'm talking to him, I'm like, those fucking hacks. Uh, and then when I went, um, obviously played in the NFL, when Stedman scoped my knee the last time, um, after I got hurt to my 10th year and he went and scoped, I was like, oh, I had a look. I saw him the next day. He's like, uh, the knee looks, you know, it's going to be fine. Everything looks good. He's like, you know, you don't have an ACL anymore. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. He goes, it looks like an old tear. Did you notice anything? I'm like, no. I'm like, well, what do you think? He's like, well, I'm not going to fix it. He's like, obviously you, you know, you tore it years ago and it's never affected you. And as I related in this story, he's like, I, you know, he's like, it just goes to show that not everybody needs it. And then he also made a funny point. He said, when I checked your knee, um, when you were awake, I couldn't tell you had a torn ACL. The minute I put you out, I knew you had a torn ACL. And he goes, it's just the insertion for your hamstring was so thick that there was no way for me to tell. The coping mechanism of the, of the ecosystem is, is strong, but not as strong for everybody. There's two variables. And, you know, with variables and populations that you think about a bell-shaped curve, right? Um, and so the one bell-shaped curve to consider is, is people's neuromuscular plasticity and how well they can retrain their system to stabilize that joint in space. So that's the one variable. The second variable is the spectrum of injury with ACL injury. And what I mean by that is you have on one side people who have partial tearing of their ACL. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have people who've completely obliterated their ACL. They've torn their lateral meniscus root posteriorly. They've meniscus caps their separation medially, and they've got a big bone bruise on their MRI. And so you've got both everybody's, you know, a spectrum. But the problem is we think binary you know we think black and white we think acl torn and it's not you know it's the dimmer switch you know where were you on that dimmer switch of the injury event and then where are you on the dimmer switch of ability to cope to injury and adapt to it and there's too many variables in that equation to, to give a simple algorithm so that's where gut and, and and experience comes in and so you know you've got you've got some athletes that you manage every athlete different and sometimes you know they do need an acl and sometimes they don't need an acl and it's it's just it's just completely individual mm -hmm. but that's yeah. like, you uh, probably have a partial tear and then you had a little slack in your system and that led to the cartilage change and so you on that spectrum of acl injury you were probably here and then also on that spectrum of ability to neuromask neuromuscularly adapt, you're an adapter, you're a coper. And those two things together is why you were able to function at such a high level. Yeah. Is, um, I remember like when, uh, you know, like when I had my surgery, it was like either middle third patellar tendon, they were taking the tip of the hamstring. Um, and then there was a big period where guys were going and getting cadavers done because they could come back in three weeks, four weeks time. It was just such a, such a less more or such a, uh, reduced invasive like kind of procedure. Um, and then I remember when I was talking to Dr. Stedman about it, he's like, we don't do that anymore because the, the chance of re-rupture is so high that like we're, you know, it, it just, it's not worth our time and the outcomes are really poor. So they went back to the, what he said was the gold standard, which was the middle third. I, 
I got to believe that there's something better than, you know, cutting up, you know, uh, you know, a healthy tendon, pulling it out, you know, using that, uh, you know, part and then hoping for it. Like there feels like there has to be some form of advance. So this is a big part of, of our research. And one project that I'm, we're working on is called the BioACL, the Biologic Enhancement of ACL Reconstruction. And the problem with ACL reconstruction is that the maturation of your graft is variable based upon the tissue that we use and based upon you as a human too. And that maturation, and we call it ligamentization, ligament. So because you're taking a tendon and it's ligamentizing into a new ligament. It can, it can be mature anywhere from three months out to 24 months. And so for a time, we really tried to push, 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 and get people back. And we were able to get them back at three and six months because our therapists were getting us, you know, we were correlating with our therapists. And that was really in the 2000s. In the 2000s, we were coordinating with our therapists so well that we could get their muscles back. But the problem is if you put someone back on a field at that time point, say six months, there's a high incidence of, of re-rupture because the graft hasn't ligamentized yet. The first graft that we started really kind of becoming most widespread was the bone tendon bone autograft, meaning like you were saying, the middle third of your patellar tendon, a little bit of bone from your kneecap, central third of your tendon, a little bit of bone from your tibia. And the reason that that graft is still the gold standard is because to do the surgery, I make a bone tunnel and then I pull a graft into place that's got bone on each side. So you get bone to bone healing. Alternatively, if you take a hamstring graft, you're then taking the hamstring and pulling it into a bone tunnel. So you have to get tendon to bone healing, which is just less consistent and takes a little bit longer. And so we started with bone tendon bone autograft. And then we got really excited about hamstrings and hamstrings are still a good graft but there's some downsides of hamstrings and there's some studies to suggest that there's a little bit of a higher failure rate with hamstrings. And then we got real excited about cadaver grafts, but the problem with cadaver grafts is the variability of people's immune systems. And some people's immune systems are just a little bit more aggressive than others and they, they chew up grafts. Mm -hmm. And so we've really abandoned allografts for young people. We still do them in older people, but not really in younger people anymore. And now, you know, we're kind of getting interested in the quad tendon. But as we've kind of seen everything cycle, the one thing that remains clear is that bone tendon bone is still considered the gold standard and probably because you got bone healing into bone. It's it's that's a big you yeah, know no I mean radical. yeah I, I remember it de de described as anchors like you know like you have those two anchor points and then you can go in there and you know obviously it, it should grow back into with the uh, with the tunnel. Hey doc, for those of us who've never drilled through bone and threaded a tendon <laughs> through a bone tunnel and you know uh, can you can you give us like a I don't know, something that we can understand and, and empathize with trying to like perform this surgery on non-human parts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like how, um, how big a bone sections are we talking? How thick is the tunnel? Right, right. I mean, that. So the, the graph is what as thick as your finger or is ACL. A, 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 ACL. The ACL is like a pinky. Yep. You got it. It's about this thick in terms of diameter. It's 10 millimeters in terms of the bone plugs standard. 
and then the tendon for a bone tendon bone, it's about it's about 10 millimeters in width, but it's only three millimeters in width. Sorry, three millimeters in width, and then you know 10 millimeters wide. And so, and then lengthwise, it is probably about the length of this right here. And so when we're as and Doc, Doc has a pen, uh, yeah. a uniball pen appears to be a five millimeter point. Um, yeah. yeah. Standard, you know, my, I'm a pen snob. I have to write with, with these pens. But uh, in terms of a similar thing, and I always kind of think about what I do in my garage or, you know, just, you know, around our house, it's probably, you know, similar to like working on your alternator, you know, and you're, you know, if you're changing your alternator, actually getting to your alternator is a little bit of you know the the trick of it mm -hmm. so to speak and then getting that belt to line up with the remaining belts is a little bit of the trick of it and the more you do it the better you get at it it's that's the same with with acl reconstruction and so you know we tend to to make incisions for bone tendon bone to harvest the graft but then we do everything else through the scope and so we've got a camera sitting in the joint and then we bring instruments in and then drilling, it's it's you know ten millimeter drill bit, acorn reamer. <laughs> so you know like that spade tip bit you use to make a, a three quarter inch hole in a in your garage. Sure. It's about a quarter inch, uh, similar to a spade tip, but instead it's an acorn tip. So it's uh, we call it an acorn reamer. <laughs> and so, you know, it's 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 like working in your garage. But I mean, people. I say that, I hope I don't sound trite or I don't sound... Well, you, know, you guys like have the same tools. If you, if you look at the tools they have, the power tools, they're like uh, stainless, like medical grade. Really shiny and cool looking? Yeah, they're like, you know, like, like. Uh, you know I, I like so Milwaukee stuff. it's not like stuff. Milwaukee or DeWalt? No, like. no, but it's, <laughs> it, it's not that far off. I mean, these guys, it, like, you uh, know, could be metal fabricators, you know? It is not, you know, and that's one thing that, you know, the better surgeons also do woodworking and, and stuff in their garage. You know, they're always kind of using their hands you know and we've we have a cool situation here because we've got a cadaver lab and so um one of my mentors always said hey adam if you really want to get good do a lot of biomechanical cadaver study because then you're just getting up in the lab and you're shooting free throws you know you're up there you know just practicing you know you're doing studies on meniscus so we've done a good amount of studies on meniscus repair and techniques around that to to really just get in the lab and shoot some free throws, you know, and that helps. And it translates into when you're, you're actually working on helping humans. Doc, when, um, I'm sure you're, uh, similar to me in a lot of ways, when you see enough people, you start to see patterns. Uh, like, are there any patterns that you've noticed with people that are coming in with ACLs where like you see, like maybe anthropometrical ratio, size, strength, this, and like they come in and you're like, I kind of expected this. Like, I, I, I wonder if like there's, I mean, I, I do the same thing in terms of like strength training. You see people move and you see enough people do certain things. They fall into these little boxes. And I just wonder with the surgeon in, uh, in your deal, is it the same way? It's more based upon the sports, you know, I mean, people, you, people are variable in terms of everyone who, in terms of who's tearing their ACL. Um, but the constants is the sports, you know, I've, I've never seen a track athlete tear his ACL, you know, and we were discussing this yesterday with my trainer, my, one of my, the, my trainers who helps me in clinic spent four years at Auburn up there. 
And I was like, Em, have you ever seen anybody, a track athlete, tear their ACL? She's like, no. Um, and so I'd say with the variability that we are pushing sport, John, I mean, think about it. Sport is a business. And it's, you know, the, the people at most risk are our kids. Sure. The well, people there we, was a 10-year-old little boy the day after post-op that I had my shoulder. They wheeled in a 10-year-old little boy that they had just done an ACL on. And they had used his, um, his IT, uh, some, I think a piece of his IT band. I was yeah. I, like, I didn't know if I should yell at the doctor or the parents. I'm like, what? Like, that was me. I did that one. <laughs> but, uh, but why would you fix an ACL on a 10-year-old? Like, at least give them the chance. Like, like that, because, that blew my well, mind. So the problem with kids is that you can't slow them down. And so, so, and, and we know this, there's clear data, John, that if you don't fix an ACL and a kiddo, they tear their meniscus. Oh, okay. I got it. You know, and so that is clear. That's clear as day. You know, if that, that 10 year old, I can't leave him alone. Well, how does a 10 year old tear an ACL? Sports. You know, we're, we're organizing sports for these, these kids. And I mean, I hope, I hope I don't sound like I'm biting the hand that keeps me busy, but I need to because, and, and that's true. And that's one of Andrews's biggest things is well, how do we, that's how we stop this? Well, that's how we, how we know you're a good surgeon where you're not like, Hmm, keep sending me more. Hmm, hmm, hmm. You know, we got and, and that's what I like about Dr. Andrews. I mean, he wrote that great piece about uh, um, allowing kids to periodize through different sports so that the repetitive nature, which he's finding like, this is what's leading to the injury is because kids aren't periodizing through these sports with seasons. It's overuse. And at the same time, it's over specialization. And, you know, we don't need to create factories of sport. When you create factories of sport, the sports chew up people and it chews them up and spits them out. And they're forever harmed because of it. And we got to just ease off on how crazy we are about sports. All these softball leagues and volleyball leagues and swimming leagues and 24 seven, you know, kids going all over the world to, to do sport. Sure, we're getting sure we're getting some great athletes out of it, but we're also chewing up a lot of non-athletes with it. And Dark, they're, they're oh, quick question: Just we had Tim Hewitt on, as John mentioned before, and he spoke to NBA and NFL return to season, so speeding right into your your full speed competitive arena. So with this off season that we've been forced into as athletes. And the parents, off? yes, the quarantine season and the parents wanting to rush their kid back to sport full speed. Do you foresee any uh, jump in injuries with the detraining effect that the kids got into or teens uh, or college athletes? Yeah, we're, we're going to see a spike as people are, are deconditioned and then they just go out and expect to do exactly what they, they were doing. And that was sort of when you were saying patterns, you know, there are you see athletes and you see non-athletes and both get hurt. You know what I mean? But the, the problem is you can look at, I mean, you, I, you know, you, that's one thing about Andrews is he, he has an eye for the athletes. And um, part of, part of when you're talking to him about a specific patient, he wants to know the social history more than anything else. Meaning like, well, did he, where did he go to college, Adam? And how much did he throw in college? And then how much has he thrown in the big leagues? Or has he just been in the in the minor leagues? And then how long has he been in the minor leagues, Adam? And, you know, so the social history is, and he's getting the picture 
of is this guy a baller or is he not a baller? Because both of those, both of those athletes make it to every level. Like you'll see kids at college, you know, be like, that kid's not a baller, but he's been able to work hard enough and he's got good hands that he can be a wide receiver. Right. Yeah. And then I don't know, I've never met Edelman, but I'd want, I, I, that's what I think about when I think about Edelman. I mean, that guy's got amazing hands. He knows how to move into the space. Gretzky, you know, Gretzky tells a story about, you know, I wasn't as big as the other kids. I wasn't as strong as them, but I sat there and I watched hockey all day long and I drew exactly where the puck was going to be or where the puck spent the And that's where he came up with, you know, skate to where the puck is. Right. So that guy's not, you know, just a complete and utter specimen, but he's been able to still make it and he's still going to get hurt. So athletes and non-athletes, they, they both get hurt, but you know, you're right about when we turn on from this break, we're not going to be conditioned to turn on. And probably the most risk is our throwers because they haven't been throwing. So their, their UCLs have not been seeing the stress and then they're going to go out and they're going to throw as hard as they can thinking that they can, and they're going to pop, you know, and, and same with ACLs. They haven't been playing soccer. And so they're, they've probably lost some of their coordination. They're just going to go out and start playing soccer again. Why, uh, why track with no ACLs? Cause it's all sagittal. Like you're sprinting down a track. There's no change of direction. You have no defender trying to light you up that you have to move evasive. I think the last thing you said is probably pretty important. You know, um, the most common uh, re-injury after ACL in the NFL is wide receivers. And I think it's because wide receivers don't really know when they're going to get hit or how they're going to get hit and from what angle. You know, a track athlete, he's predicting every – he knows what's coming up next, you know, but not a wide receiver, you know. And running backs too, you know, running backs don't – so it's all about awareness and preparation of your body pretty quickly to an impact or a change in direction. And a track athlete always knows when he's changing directions, right? I mean, I can't think of one setting or sport of a track athlete where they're surprised with what's coming next. The only but time I've ever seen anybody get hurt in a track setting was uh, I saw somebody trip on a hurdle and take a funny deal and ended up, I, I, I want to say, like blew out an ankle or, you know, maybe tore. I forgot what they tore. I don't, it wasn't an ACL, but it, it had to do uh, with a freak deal like that. They went over the hurdle and it got caught in a weird way. Or pull vaulters. Yeah, you know, pull vaulters. There, you know, we had a pull vaulter last week who had a bad knee. But uh, it's just not as not as common. You, I think you're hitting it with the surprise and the change of direction and the unpredictability of the sport versus predictability of it. Do you think that the the over-specialization that, that can be, could it be argued that it's under-generalization as well? Like, uh, I'm just thinking of compensatory type of training since we're, we're, we're before that sport-specific piece, right, at Power Athlete. We're working with strength coaches doing relatively gen, a foundation of relatively general training in the forms of, like, squatting, stepping, lunging, you know, upper body work, lower body work that that kind of filters into a bit of individuality and specialization towards sports, but it's not necessarily sport specific. If you got these because kids, we don't teach people to use ball like that's right. Like that's what pisses me off, especially in what Luke's getting to about uh, people selling sports specific training. And I'm like, oh, is it on the field? Are you the coach? 
you can't do sports specific training in a in, in a gym environment. That's all general training. So mm-hmm. it, I guess, it, and that's where it was a bit of the impetus for our ACL injury prevention course is let's arm sport coaches and strength coaches with like a general approach that's sports agnostic that addresses some of the risk factors that Dr. Hewitt was talking about. It, I, do, I guess long form into a more pointed question is there data or do you observe whether or not some of these athletes that come in, are they participating in, um, in well-crafted strength and conditioning programs? Or is it just like, I play sports and that's how I train? Yeah, you're, you're, you're hitting it. Um, for instance, there's been developed neuromuscular training programs to work on people's jump landing mechanics, Mm -hmm. their neuromuscular training, certain muscle group balances that can prevent ACL injury. But the problem is it takes too long and the coaches don't necessarily want to take 10 minutes before practice to do 10 to 30 minutes worth of this, Mm -hmm. because then they feel like the time they have to work on the skills for say soccer is diminished. And so there are, it started with the soccer world and it's called the FIFA 11. The FIFA 11 is a, a warm, warm up, you know, a warm up program to, to help prevent ACL injury. And the problem is, you know, we're a commodity based society in terms of sport and that we care more about how good people get at soccer than how long they're going to play soccer for. (laughs) And if we did spend some more time just developing them as all around athletes before we decided to develop them as a soccer player, then you'd have a a longer longevity of their career and less of them getting injuries. Yeah. And and part of big chunk of the course that Luke was referencing is developing that social intelligence for either the parent or the, the strength coach, sport coach, to help argue and pull back those 10 minutes from the, the skill portion well, and all that. that's kind of been our, our, our plan of attack, realizing that the sport coach is not focused on that. They are only focused on the skill that we're actually putting the, uh, uh, the emphasis and the otis on the parent as like, you know, you, your job as a parent when, like, I, I always think the day that I decide, like, my little boy, if he wants to go play football, that I have to go out there and, like, actually, like, see him step on the field and listen to these coaches and go through the whole training <laughs> thing. It's just going to be, like, shocking but I know that the day he goes out there and wants to do it, he will be so well prepared because I understand the rigors of the game and I'm just not going to throw him out there. I tell him, I'm like, hey, like, it's funny. He's four. And I'm like, if you ever want to play football, just mm-hmm. tell me because we have yeah, a we whole have, training a, system. He's on a four-way neck machine every day, you know. But, <laughs> but, but just like understanding, like, um, uh, I think what we have to do is we have to arm our kids. And when I mean arm them, like create a, like a, a suit of armor through not only through training, through skills and all the development as a parent. Because if you just throw them out there to these uh, vultures, you know, a.k.a. the sport coach, who's just purely uh, focused on winning games as they should be, uh, like, mm-hmm. I think as a parent, you're doing yourself a disservice. Like, like you're putting your kid in a bad situation. And so something we've really focused on is, like, educating the sport coach and the parent. So as a parent, if you are going to drop the kid off, you should have uh, at least the wherewithal to understand that, like, hey, here's the dangers and here's how I can help uh, prevent some of these problems down the road. The, the coaches, they are under the gun to win. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what they've got to put at the pinnacle of, of how they make decisions by necessity. Um, it's, 
we got to develop our kids as athletes before we develop them as single sport athletes. And, you know, Jordan Spieth is a prime example, right? He didn't really specialize in golf till he was 18. That's a recurrent theme with these amazing athletes. You know, going back to Wayne Gretzky, uh, have you ever seen that In Search of Greatness documentary? No. It's pretty cool. It talks about Wayne Gretzky, uh, Jerry Rice, um, and a couple others, and talks just about, you know, how, why, you know, why were these people different than other people? And one common thread is how their imagination around sport was primed by multi-sports. Meaning if you are outside playing and just playing, and that was another big point that Gretzky makes is kids just need to play. They don't need to be into this focused little program about, okay, for five minutes, you're going to do this drill. Then for five minutes, you're going to do that drill. And then five minutes, you're going to do this drill. And then there's going to be 20 minutes worth of you know, just one, you know, seven on seven, you know, instead he said that does not foster imagination and imagination is how athletes really get to someone that's, that's unique and different. And so, you know, we got to create athletes and athletes who just enjoy what they're doing and have imagination about what they're doing too, through cross pollination of sport. And then when they're at the right time, then specialize them to a sport when the time's right. And the, the time's right is probably college. It's probably not before it. But, you know, we're, we're grinding our kids. And, um, you know, the, you're right. You know, there's, there's serpents. You know, people come in all types. But, you know, you got to be careful with, with coaches. I love them, but you got to be careful with them because, you know, they, they got to win if they want to keep their job. Sure. They don't really, that's what they put, that's what it's at the pinnacle of their, their uh, decision-making. And I don't think all of them are the crack a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Like certainly those guys do exist, but maybe it depends on the level. Well, yeah. that was, uh, the joke you're making, that was my offensive line coach. Uh, hey, we got to crack a lot of eggs to make an omelet. So if you guys get hurt, there's surgery and then you get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and that's what he, uh, he's he, head coach in the NFL, you know, top offensive line coach in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And but when the stakes are his, high, he's probably not uh, wrong, which is kind of ruthless to well, say. But, um, and he did become an NFL head coach. And he's one of, yeah, one of the best offensive line coaches in the NFL. <laughs> um, so was he wrong? No. But the thing which I found most interesting uh, is the athletes that I found were the best uh, football players usually had developed their skills doing something else. Like for me, I had dreams of being a professional boxer. And it just so happened that the skills I developed boxing allowed me to play offensive line. Uh, Tony Gonzalez was a very talented, you know, probably could have played in the NBA, but there was more need for a six foot four tight end who's, you know, 17 years in the Hall of Fame than there is for a guy in the NBA at 6'4". So like, you know, I, I was watching, um, there was some killer uh, high school video of LeBron James playing receiver and tight end. And, like, he could have easily, you know, gone and played in the NFL and been a good player. I mean, he's the best basketball player, you know, um, next to Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Iverson like, as well was quarterback. Yeah, and quarterback. Yeah, I, yeah. And I, Iverson was great. What's cool is Jason Williams, white basketball player, was Randy Moss's quarterback yeah. Yeah. in high school. And Randy mm-hmm. Moss was a great basketball player. Yeah. Um, that, so, so they – Yeah, like, there's so, so there's story after story after story of these guys, like – uh, that ran track in this and like had these incredible, uh, you know, skills outside. And like those guys are usually the ones that did really well, but also were kind of late bloomers. Like that's the, the, the underarching like 
whenever you hear these stories of like the Michael Jordans where I got cut and, uh, you know, uh, like had to kind of persevere and then, you know, found J.J. Watt. Late bloomer. Late mm, bloomer. Your boy, uh, your boy, J.J. Um, Watt. Say it. Say it. J.J. <laughs> Watt. Uh, which is our joke, because if you listen to uh, Gruden, like, I fucking couldn't listen. I couldn't watch Monday Night Football with Gruden because of how much he loved. Slobber Oh, my God. To the point where I'd be like, this guy. Uh, but, uh, like, that's what's really interesting is that, like, one, like you said, they developed athleticism or uh, imagination, which goes back to what Woodsky talked about. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the idea Create of, like, developing, like, a creating a reality, developing this athleticism. And I, I, I call it athletic problem solving. So what I do is I set up things for my kids to see how they solve problems. Like, hey, how are you going to climb this tree? How are you going to get over this? And I think the problem is, is when you put people in too rigid an environment where it's like, hey, this is how I want you to do it. It doesn't foster and develop athleticism. You're right on. They got to cross pollinate. They have to have, you know, imagination through multiple sports. And the other thing that you hit upon is being a late bloomer. You're just getting less reps upon Mm. your joints. And and, if you think about an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman, every day you're getting down into a stance and pushing out of it. So you're loading your patellofemoral joint and you're loading that cartilage every day. And then how do you get strong? You get strong for your job by going into the weight room and lifting weights, which also loads your patellofemoral joint. And so if you, and that's just one example, but there's multiple examples of how sports are literally grinding on your joints. And so if you're spent less time in the grind, so to speak, then you're going to be able to stay in the grind for longer. Let's take a swimmer, for example. If you're swimming and you're swimming every day and you're swimming, 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 and you start when you're seven years old, by the time you get to college, that joint's been doing that over and over again. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? And then you go from there. It's the same thing. Whereas if that, that swimmer is just such an athlete that you put them in the pool in college and they just, they kill it, then that joint's fresh and that joint's going to make it, you know? And so it's the same with, and the throwers are probably the best example. If they've been thrown out when they're in high school, they're going to barely make it through college and they're not going to make it to the pros. And so how much they've needed to perform. And LeBron's the king of this. If you watch, he does not go 110% at the beginning of the season. He turns it on in the playoffs. I thought you were going to say on defense. (laughs) (laughs) Burn. You got to Brady the same way. You know, Brady chooses his battles. True, and that's what I, I tell my, my, my patients, too, is choose your battles. You know, yes, you've got a knee that's got a little bit of wear and tear of the cartilage underneath your kneecap. Train with BFR and don't do squats and lunges or do less and do less weight, but then choose your battles and turn it on when you need to turn it on. You know, so in practice, Brady had there's a, a dude and I think it's his entire job is he counts Brady's reps like a light, like a rep counter, like uh, like in baseball almost. So they would have and he had X amount of throws he could do. And um, I saw that, you know, and there were certain guys and I, I saw this through my entire NFL career. There was always somebody counting the quarterback's reps, how many throws. And they always knew if the guy was like, you know, uh, like a big monkey or a small monkey where like he could only handle maybe 100 throws a day because they had to save him. Whereas there were other guys that were throwing three and four hundred times. And it's just pretty interesting, like uh, seeing like, um, you know, this guy had an injury. He's getting older. He can't do this or he just can't handle the volume. 
And, you know, what they would do is they would cut the reps and the throws, you know, do more walkthroughs, do more of this as guys. So it was really interesting to see um, how everybody's managed different based upon what the training load looks like. Whereas as an offensive lineman, you better be a big monkey and handle a shit ton of volume. Or you're never going to be able to get there. So you all know who Kevin Steele is. Uh, Kevin Steele is defensive coordinator for Auburn. He's been throughout the SEC as a defensive coordinator. Um, and he told me, uh, he's like, Adam, everybody's got their rep count. Every one of my players has a rep count, and I know their rep count. So I know when I need to pull them. I know how many D. Brown has. I know how many Marlon has. I know. And I pull them when I have to. But that's what makes a great coach, is a great coach knows their players' reps and knows how many reps they got and when they need to get them out. And, and I don't think that's, – that's what takes a good coach to a great coach, and that's what makes a great coach protect his players – and be able to keep his players throughout a whole season is those reps. And so the good one, I think he's one of the best defensive coordinators in the SEC, if not the best in the SEC, he gets it. And he's been at this game a long time. And he said, Adam, everybody's got their reps. I know the reps. I know each, I know each and everyone's reps. And I was Mm -hmm. like, "Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Manage your resources. Right. Exactly. Yep. But I mean, the, uh, and that, that's super smart. I mean, I played for coaches that were just going to fucking run their horses into the ground. And Is he on fire yet? No, I mean, nope. uh, like they just fucking beat people into the ground. And the idea of like, hey, you get beaten to the ground, we'll just throw somebody else in there. And only the, you know, the really stupid guys are going to survive to the end, which I probably put myself in that one. <laughs> where like, what, what, who I'm said like, the quote, if you're dumb, you better be hard? Uncle Dave. Uh, Uncle Dave, <laughs> who... Uh, um, one of our uh, buddies has been like a 22-year Navy SEAL. Uh, he used to tell his guys, he's like, if you're going to be dumb, you better be hard. <laughs> and so he would tell his guys, like, you're not that hard. You better be smart. Your heart is fucking coffin nails. You can be dumb as shit. And, um, I, like, uh, you know, and that's uh, – I sometimes think um, very few players will care about their personal, like, hey, I just want to go out there and be successful. And the problem is, is when you take that type of attitude and then you have a coach who's willing to just put the fucking reins to your back all the time, you end up just getting imploded. So, I mean, to hear that there's coaches that are smart and being like, you know what, I know this dude will run through a wall. Let me manage him. And uh, that's, a, that's a rare individual. So that's, a, that's good to know. It's, it's always uh, – it's not always that way. And those are the ones we have to fight with. Or, well, I'm sorry, those are the ones we don't have to fight with. But we still sometimes have to protect and advocate for our players. And, you know, it seems like the defensive guys get that more than the offensive coaches. You know, they, they just want to – they don't get it. That if you, if you take that six-month-out ACL and you run a go route on him, that's probably not smart. You know, he's six months out from an ACL and you just have him go a go route. And you can control that, right? I mean, get him in there with a five-yard bubble screen. You know, don't <laughs> – don't give him a go route for his first route back from an ACL injury. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, so, but that's the good coaches get it. And they, they, their situational awareness is, is broader mm. and they, they, they succeed, you know, and that, it was something that I, I was not expecting when I heard Kevin say that. And it's something that, you know, it influences how I help protect the athletes, but we have to, like, a lot of times we got to advocate for them. We got to protect them from sometimes the coaches, sometimes their strength trainers, sometimes their parents, <laughs> because their parents are just like, no, he's ready. And you're just like, oh, shit. 
What, no. what do you think like the next big advance? I mean, you were saying that like, you know, hey, like the uh, uh, the scope was like a big, big advance and, you know, the biologics with doing the stem cell. Like what's the next big hurdle? Like if all of a sudden the FDA came out and said, OK, hey, you can culture this stuff outside the body or is there some technology? I just wonder, like, what will be the next big advance where you're going to look back and think, fuck, how did we survive without this? I, I really think it is uh, nupogen mobilized cells that we store and then have them like a bank. And it's gotta be your cells. And so the, the problem is with allograft cells is your immune system. You know, your immune systems fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. You know, your immune system sees something and then creates antibodies to respond to it. So allograft cells are, are gonna be, they're gonna work maybe once in certain applications, but the problem is we're like a garden and you got to reseed and fertilize your garden at multiple time points. You know, every year there's changes and you got to reseed your, your grass to make it grow nice. It's the same with us, you know, so we're going to see us mobilize people with filgrestim, which is a, a drug used by the cancer doctors for bone marrow transplant, harvest people at one time point and bank their cells. And then, then we just wait for them to have an injury. And then we got the cells already, you know, and, It'll help us have more flexibility with treating injuries and getting athletes back faster. We're going we're gonna to crack the code on, on increasing graft integration. Back full circle to our ACL story. We're going to crack the code on getting that graft to ligamentize quicker, which means we will see return to sports quicker after ACL. It's going to take us some time, but we're going to get there, and it's going to be a cell augment too. Um, so I know, you know, previously you'd said, you know, that the stem cells just haven't performed and I would completely and utterly agree. And that's because we've approached it like throwing spaghetti at a wall instead of like building a pyramid You know, the pyramids are still there. That's because it took them a long time to build them and they built them like a pyramid. So <laughs> I think, Most stable structure on the planet. Shocker. So, but we've been approaching stem cells, like throwing spaghetti at a wall. Hey, this may work. Hey, we'll just charge people thousands of dollars for this, you know, and see if it works. Hey, we'll just take people's fat and shake it up in this canister and squirt it in their knee and see if it works. Hey, we'll just chop up placenta and put it in someone's knee and see if it works. You know, so, you know, we've been approaching stem cells, you know, haphazardly. Not everybody, but the majority of, of the population in terms of providers. But there are technologies that are being developed like pyramids and those will be there. And I'm, I'm convinced giving people Neupogen, taking their blood, storing it is the future for that. Um, that's going to, it's going to be a game changer because then I can improve your biology just like, like that instead of, you know, only having success with, you know, pure athletes, people who are not mere mortals. He's <laughs> uh, um is there like an element, I, I know like when you did uh, like the marrow transplant on me, you asked some questions like, hey man, yours was extremely dense and thick. Like, uh, you know, and we were, we kind of went over, was it diet, was it training? You know, what, what did it look like? I mean, is there a case to say that if you're going in for some form of orthopedic uh, injury, like having a kind of a backlog of not only like, you know, training, fitness, so that like you have a greater chance, you know, it's uh, like, um, like as you're cutting through the tissue, it's, it's easier to cut through and like, cause I, I imagine you're working with like the world's best athletes and then the average person comes in and you're like, Oh shit, this is a way fucking different deal. 
you're right on. You know, people, um, people's biology is, is different and people who are, are pure athletes are just different. Uh, their tissues are, are stronger. They've got more cells in their bone marrow. Um, those, those are there. Uh, then you also have um, people who are just, are just constantly being athletic. And if you're constantly being athletic, then your, your biology is better. You know, so there's, there's two things. There's one, just how good your genes are. And that, you know, you can't really control. Your genes are your genes. But the second thing is, is how good your biology system is. And that goes back to health. That goes back to what you eat. That goes back to how much you exercise. And that you can control. And so, yes, you know, exercising every day for at least 20 minutes is a must because that's how you condition your bone marrow to turn over and repopulate itself. And within your bone marrow are these cells with stem capability. And then they mobilize to your bloodstream when you exercise and when you're injured, and then they, they help you heal. The other thing that, you know, I got pushed into vegetarianism by my wife um, about 10 years ago, and I still haven't been able to go completely vegetarian because Good. I love, I love barbecue. I love oysters. And, you know, you just can't, but <laughs> hard. <laughs> but um, what I, what I will say is that I think there is something to a vegetarian and a vegan diet. And there's two pieces of observation to share. One blue zones. If, if you get a chance, just kind of peruse or, or read this book called blue zones where they went back and they, these two brothers just researched uh, mortality rates all over the world and found certain locations where people lived longer and they identified them as blue zones. And uh, they had some recurring themes. One is that the people either were forced to or did exercise every day, like they had to walk to work. Um, the other thing was that they had good communal support, meaning they had communal system where they had good uh, just personal interactions. And then one of the third things that stuck out to me was that they were predominantly agrarian based diets. You know, they all of them, the amount of meat that they ate in a week was probably the size of their fist. And so that's something that I've thought about. Another observation, they did a study looking at uh, pulling blood and making PRP uh, with people and they allowed them to eat just, you know, regular animal fats versus vegetables versus vegan. And uh, the PRPs, what's in your plasma is a lot different if you don't consume a lot of animal fat. Um, your plasma is cloudy uh, if you consume a lot of animal fat and that makes sense versus it's pretty crystal clear if you're predominantly a vegetable based diet. Um, well, so is one better than the other? I mean, why, uh, to say like, Hey, if the plasma is a clear versus cloudy, is one better than yes. the other? Yeah. Think about your radiator, you know, or your oil in your car too. Um, you know, Although I, you know, I haven't been able to go all vegan because I like animal fats. If I could, I would. If if I just was able to just say Adam's brain is going to do what is going to make Adam Ann's live the longest, it probably would be to be a vegan um, because animal fat is it's dense. You know, the little as your bodies break it down, it is globules of fat floating through your bloodstream. 
And then those globules of fat go through your brain and go through your heart and then cause some changes in the arteries of your heart that do lead to coronary artery disease and probably go through your brain and are, are associated to a certain length with how well your brain functions for a long time. And then, you know, you, those animal fats circling through all of your, your arteries and veins ultimately does, does change you. And so it's easy to say that it's really hard to do. Just Google but, uh, old vegans. If you want yeah. an interesting thing, like, like look at some like older vegans, they look awful. Like, I, I, yeah, I just don't think they look good. Like I've met some people that were like older vegans and like, I like the, the people that I've met that were, you know, like moderations, a key exercise. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I've just performance wise, I've just never understood like a vegan approach. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with you on that one. I'm sure Ken Ford would disagree on, with you on that yeah, one as well. Yeah, he's a big keto guy. And well, yeah. tell me on keto. Tell me about that from a, from a, that's probably a whole podcast. A whole uh, for for me, I'd like uh, I got introduced to the keto diet through a guy named Mauro De Pasquale, um, my rookie year in the NFL, and it was a cyclical ketogenic diet, kind of you know higher protein, higher fat, you know no carb, and then with some constant carb refeeds, and it was uh, it was very very um, beneficial for me in terms of rebottling some body composition, but I also realized uh, that I think I mitigated some of the concussion and some of the brain injury through my NFL career by staying relatively low carb, um, and, you know, higher protein diet. So, you know, maybe, you know, with, uh, you know, as you know, the one thing you don't do give somebody after some form of, uh, acute brain trauma is glucose. So the idea of like, you know, staying lower carb on the days and then, you know, having some carb refeeds ended up being really beneficial. And I think when I got to the end of this thing, I might not have had the same cognitive issues that some of my other teammates had. But also I think that there's some extenuating circumstances. Like I, um, I didn't take the painkillers. Uh, a lot of guys, as you know, like take a ton of painkillers. Pain just never bothered me the same way. Um, like it didn't, it, it was never something I ran from or I was really like, I felt like guys were scared of pain. Whereas I kind of embraced it like an old friend, like, come on in, sit down, let's have a, have a nice chat, you know, stay for a while, then leave. And I think like making that deal with pain, uh, has allowed me to not take painkillers. Like I've never taken anything from my shoulder, you know, like I've taken some, uh, you know, some leave, you know, maybe once, but it's just pain just never really bothered me. And, um, I sometimes think that that might've been one of the reasons. Uh, but I also think that maybe doing some of the cyclical keto stuff tended to work. When did you first injure your knee? How old were you? Uh, I was 18 years old when I, when I hurt my knee. I was up in a, I was at a buddy's house and we were in his tree fort. Like uh, we were standing over there. He had a killer view of the back of his house. And as I was coming down, the last rung on the ladder broke. And I drove my knee straight into the ground. And I felt a pop and my knee swole up. And uh, I came home and I, cho I told my brother and we got into the pool and he started doing a bunch of like just manual therapy in it in the pool yeah. and uh, seven days later i went to go play in the shrine game and when i went in there they put us through a physical and i asked the doc i think i hurt my knee i might have you know i heard a pop and he checked it and he's like it doesn't feel loose so i went out and i played and it wasn't until my third year um let's see i was playing uh left tackle i went to cut a guy and i got kneed in the forehead and knocked unconscious and uh i came i came out in the next week I was playing, I went to pull, and, I, and all of a sudden as I was running, I went to plant, I slipped and ended up tearing cartilage in my knee. And now we kind of understand that there's a mechanism between uh, 
getting like concussed and getting knocked unconscious and like instability in the lower body. Who was the guy we have on the podcast? Dustin Grooms. Yeah. So uh, I tore cartilage. They went in. They, they pulled the fluid out because my knee swole up. They pulled the fluid. and There was no blood in the fluid. So the doctor was like, there's no blood. There's no ACL tear. So let's see if it goes away. It didn't go away. They went in and scoped it. And that's when the doc found out I didn't have an ACL. What cartilage did you tear? Was it a meniscus? Was yeah, it was a meniscus. Yeah, it was a lateral meniscus. Yeah, you, you definitely had that first ACL event. And where, that, where you were on that spectrum, you may have been just a, a partial tear. And then your neuromuscular receptors, your neuromuscular you know, prowess allowed you to, to control and to perform. And then that makes total sense. Then when you had the, the concussion, that decreased your neuromuscular performance. And then that allowed you to have a little bit more, less control of your knee. And that then further you know, allowed you to have the pivot shift mechanism and tear your meniscus. Um, another side of that coin, John, is that if you're exposed to orthopedic pain at a young age, you are able to deal with orthopedic pain a lot better as you age. You know, the, the first time you have a surgery, it hurts like hell. It was awful. But then the second surgery, the third surgery, the fourth surgery, by the time you get to the fourth surgery, it's old hat, you know, and you're just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And orthopedic pain. Yeah. I have that every day. And so your exposure to pain has been also part of your story too, is because you had it at 18. So then when you had it in college, it wasn't a big deal. And then when you had it in the pros, it wasn't a big deal too, because like you were saying, it was an old friend. Yeah. No, I, I, like, uh, when I was probably three, four years old, I broke my collarbone. My brother picked me up and Powell drive me, broke, <laughs> broke my collarbone and my shoulder fell in the night and my neighbor said it, he was a doctor, orthopedic surgeon. So he set the shoulder and then they made me a little dish towel thing. And so like, I, you know, I took a helmet to the leg and broke my fibula. I, I was casted for five days, played three weeks later, and then played 17 weeks with a broken leg and was on Madden's horse trailer the week I came back. So like, I've always, you know, I've broken fingers and reset them in between plays. And so, uh, like I've always, uh, my entire life, I mean, and I've, I asked my mom about this. She's like, um, like certain kids would fall, they'd hit their bike, they would do this, they would cry. She's like, you would go down and we'd kind of pause and you would just get up and be like, huh, like brush yourself off. So she's like, I knew at a, at a certain age that, uh, the, either like your ability to process pain or how it didn't hurt you the same way. And she, and that was something my mom talked about. That's part of things that are, are, um, the the undefines about what makes good people NFL athletes. It is the athleticism. Um, it is the neuromuscular control. It is the work ethic, but then it's also the, the tolerance to pain and you got to be hard. You can't be soft to play in the NFL. And, you know, when we, when we see players trying to figure out who's going to be, make it to the next level, you know, if they're soft, you know, everybody who's in alignment in the NFL has something going on in their knee. I would say probably yeah. 80% of them have something going on in their knee. Uh, but then part of what makes them be able to perform is how hard they are versus, you know, and, and all those other variables, you know, and you, the exposure to pain at a young age probably helped you. Everybody says they've got every day I hear, well, they've got a really high pain tolerance. Everybody thinks they got a high pain tolerance. It's, but that's very untrue. Yeah. Rare to happen. Really, no, really. it's, uh, um, I'll tell you the thing that hurt the most is when I ruptured my patellar tendon. So my uh, first game, my rookie season, I stepped in a seam in, in Philadelphia and uh, ruptured my patellar tendon. 
And I swear to God, I thought I got shot by the th- from the third row because I actually was like doing this, looking for the blood. And then when they cut my pants off, I could see my kneecap was about three inches too high and to the right. And then they went in and they stitched that thing up. And uh, that was uh, like I can still and it's been that was 99. So over 10 years or 20 years ago. And I can still remember like that pain like it was yesterday. Like I can recall that memory. And uh, I like I, I sometimes I, I think you're right. Maybe having some really painful things early on probably numbed me from it. Yep. Whereas like things didn't bother me. And I remember being like, even when I broke my leg and they were like, I'm like, it hurts. It's not nearly as bad as my patellar tendon was. So I can deal with this. Those are the people too, who do best from an orthopedic standpoint. You know, I, you know, when I remember uh, with total knee replacement, you get all kinds of people who are getting a total knee replacement. And sometimes you get people in there and you, you cut open the knee, you get to do the replacement. You're like, man, this cartilage doesn't look that bad. And then other people, you get in there and it looks like it's marble on marble. You know, they've gone from being bone on bone to marble on, you know, they've worn the surfaces so much. And some of the, the key factors is doing, meaning people who are always up doing, you know, they're, they're either athletes or they're farmers, you know, people who are farming every day of their life. They're the ones who make it to age 80 and their joints are in their marble on marble. One of my favorite patients is a rodeo cowboy and this rodeo cowboy, I think it was um, in the seventies. Um, and he's like 67 years old uh, and he's awesome. He always comes in with an awesome buckle and, you know, with a, a hat and, you know, with jeans and boots and um, his shoulder looks like just crap. You know, his shoulder looks like he could never, sit here and do this. But he says, yeah, every day I, I practice. And so he had a surgery in the seventies, but every day he was moving it every day. He's moving it, moving it, moving it, moving it, moving it. And he's, I'm not going to, he's not going to get a shoulder replacement. He doesn't need it. He's got amazing motion. Although you look at his x-ray and go, that guy can never do what he does, but it's all about just moving and keeping moving and keeping exercising. And then it doesn't really matter what your exercise x-rays look just like you, John, you know, it doesn't really matter what your x-ray looks like. It matters what you do every day and what you can do. And right now you're, you're impressive what you're still doing with that shoulder. And most people wouldn't do that. Most people would just give up and they wouldn't keep moving. Yeah. Well, I I figure we got a long life. Like why give up on anything? Like I still like, uh, you know, but I still take the, like the mentality and training and being like, what if somebody were to call? Because I feel like the day that you, uh, the Johnny, day, the, I'd be like, I got one. like I, I like, and, and I've, I've told NFL guys this, like all my buddies, like the day that you stop training and the day you stop kind of preparing yourself, the wheels fall off. Yeah. And I figure, like, if this is what I've done my whole life, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to create an environment that allows me to do it, and I'm still going to take that same mentality because it, it's worked. And uh, there's nothing worse than seeing like my friends or guys that have stopped training and the wheel falls off, and I'm like. Dude, you need to get those fucking wheels strapped back on. Go get a fucking uh, impact and blast those things on and start training. Even if it's awful, you have to get in there and literally train like somebody's going to give you a phone call. How much do you have to do a day? And I, like, so, I mean, it's one thing if you're an NFL athlete who's trying to kind of keep that level of athleticism. If you're just, you know, me, you know, how much do I need to carve out to my day? To I think if you can get, uh, if you can give like a legit, 
and I mean like not like counting warm-ups and all that, but you can give like a legit 45 to 60 minutes mm -hmm. and like, you know, involve something that, you know, some compound, bio, um, you know, bilateral, unilateral movements and put a training together where you're, you know, step, squat, and lunge, push and pull, some of the, you know, the primal movement patterns we discuss here. And, you know, doing something heavy, doing something fast, you know, using compensatory, uh, compensatory acceleration, doing some form of, you know, plyometric movements, you know, throwing med balls, rotation, um, you know, a lot of the Charlie Francis stuff. And then being able to continue to go out and sprint and move and, you know, like remember who you are. I think what happens uh, for a lot of, of retired athletes is they start to like, even though they, people talk to them and they know who they are, like physically they don't do things that remind them of who they are. And that's something I like about running and going out and doing stuff and still training because it reminds me of, uh, um, I think that that's my, that's my hard line. That's my tap into, into being young forever. Like I know you ski. I know we talked about that, like, like all of a sudden, like, you know, you get in the run and you're, you know, about to bomb off of some big black diamond and you're the same person you were in your twenties or even in your teens. And like, that's the hard line back into who you are. And I think that's what keeps us young. The day that, you know, you all of a sudden like, oh, I'm too hesitate, old to do yeah. this or you hesitate. That's when you fucking start to age. And that's when I think you, you know, go out to pasture. Yeah. Yeah, so think, uh, Doc, think three to four days. If you can commit 40 minutes of, like, alternating, like what John said, heavy, and then something that looks kind of like a circuit, and then something that looks like steady-state cardio, and then probably double dip on a heavy day if you got an extra day. Yeah, we found as people age, you know, they lose mitochondrial density. And, um, you know, the ability to, to uh, develop and keep that mitochondrial density comes with building a big aerobic base. And then the other one we found with, um, you know, the, all the EMS research we were doing is people lose the ability to recruit uh, motor units. So being able to do something where they're moving a bar with max intent. And I just read a whole research article where they were looking at hypertrophy with different uh, percentages using, you know, rep maxes. And the hypertrophy was the same between a 4RM and a 12RM as long as the intent to move the bar was done. You were moving with, you know, you were like, if you got 135 on the bar, you can squat 500. You're squatting 135 like you got 500 on your back. And so that compensatory acceleration, like moving with great intent and then focusing on like, I'm going to be as clued into this to move this bar from point A to point B as violently as possible. And that was something I, I learned early in my training when I was a you know, kid training in the, uh, you know, the old powerlifters garage I used to train in. He always told me, he's like, I want you to break the weights. I want you to move these things violently. I want you to try to break them in half. You know, I want you to use compensatory acceleration and just literally I want you to fucking snap these things in half, move the bar. He, uh, his joke was don't, move, don't lift weights like old people have sex, slow and careful. <laughs> he's like, be violent. And um, it was something that I think that key allowed me to play in the NFL was just that violence in terms of movement. Yeah. And then that intent to move. I yeah. like that. Yeah, I like so I have great intent. Because I, I think a lot of times um, the connection, and I, I saw this when I retired and, and we taught all the seminars at CrossFit and I was fortunate to travel the world and work with people. The difference that I noticed between the world's best athletes and the average person was intent. Like the world's best athletes have this like incredible like attention to detail and intent and understanding of what their movement from point A to point B is. Other people are just out there fucking brain dead, you know, just yeah. moving through space and like just moving like, uh, you know, like there's, you know, the hamsters on the wheel with no like direct line. And I remember telling people, I'm like, the difference is, is that um, you have to be so clued in on everything. It's, it, you know, and it's like a Sunday drive. Like if you're just listening to the radio, just cruising on an open road, opposed from, you know, I'm in traffic, it's fucking honking, I'm in downtown New York, I'm racing from stoplight to stoplight. Like the intent and your focus is completely different. 
If you approach everything like you're driving in rush hour in New York on a, a you know on a, a you know a, a hot summer day where everything's going 100 miles an hour and there's people stepping off of the curb and you have to have all of your faculties opposed from just an open road somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So I, I thought that was a pretty good analogy that I was able to give people. And like, and then when you tell them that, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I just kind of go through the motions." And I'm like, "Do you think the world's best people go through the motions? They don't. Like, I'm sure for you, it's not. I mean, even Dr. Andrews, he goes and does a surgery. I'm sure that dude is like, like a computer, like downloading and processing information. He just doesn't put it on autopilot and mail it in. Focus. You know, I, I, I like one of the lines from a Kanye song recently was, "I'm not mean. I, I'm just focused. You know, I ain't mean. I'm just focused." Yeah, but people, people interpret that as people being mean. You know, I, I know I've, I heard we heard how Nick Saban was an asshole, you know, when he first started Alabama. Um, but it wasn't that he was an asshole. It's just that he's focused. You know, he's so focused on getting from A to B and then to C and, you know, just everything like you were saying, boom, 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 boom. Not just cruising through life. You know, that's and what you're saying is don't just cruise through a workout, you know, focus, intention and staying boom, 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 boom. You know, that's. That's what I need to start doing. I just riding a Peloton, listening to that guy tell me how fast to go. I need to start pushing and pulling on some well, stuff. Well, I, I, I was thinking when we uh, we got something for you, Doc. When we had dinner at Ken Ford, uh, so Ken Ford is uh, still one of the most interesting people I've ever met. But he is like a foodie of like the highest order. He hired a private chef, and we had this epic dinner. And I know you had a big ass steak, and you ate it because you <laughs> sat next to me. Because if I had noticed that you hadn't had the steak. I was like looking around for people that might not have eaten theirs and I would have taken it. So I know you had that. <laughs> I ate it. I did. Uh, yeah. Ken, I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like Ken was like, Hey, we're going to lunch. I'm like, where are we going? He's like, Oh, we're going to the office. My private <laughs> chef is cooking for us. And I was like, I was like, like a tear just streamed down my face. I'm like, that might be the best thing I've ever heard anybody tell. <laughs> and it was uh, unbelievable. Like the guy came in and he was like, they like gave us a minute on fucking goddamn Ken Ford. Yeah, he's uh, he's got a good chef there at IHMC, and uh, it fuels good good research because people, <laughs> people they're happy, they work hard. You know? I, yeah, I, I just imagine like when they go through like the end of the year, they're going through everything with the accountant, and like they see, they're like, "You spent how much on f- one million dollars on your food budget?" <laughs> yeah. uh, he's like, "Do you know? Do you expensive? need ten thousand ribeyes?" <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and the guy, and like you, you know, Kenny looks over. He's like, "Yes, of course." And the guy's like, "Okay, yeah, we'll find you." Yeah. <laughs> like, like he, uh, God damn, I, I love that dude. He um, every time I get like, again, I'm always amazed that uh, Ken and I are friends. I'm like, you realize that I'm not nearly smart enough to be your friend. Like, I can't believe this dude likes us. And uh, he's yeah, he's super smart, man. But yeah, I'm always amazed by that. His focus is strong, and he he's he's a smart dude. He knows what he's doing. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Let's get him back on. Okay, use this as an excuse to reach back out. Yeah, it'd be great. Well, thanks, I, Doc. I, I got I, one oh, sorry. one more question, and just you spoke at the beginning of the podcast about baseball players, and it got me thinking. And we talked about some youth and the ACL that John saw with the IT band, and John Smoltz in his his Hall of Fame. He was a uh, MLB pitcher for maybe 20 years, so a long time. And in his Hall of Fame speech, instead of thanking people, he went right after the parents that were choosing to have their kids in elective Tommy John surgery. 
So the theory, and he went behind it and said, this is, this is dangerous, stop this. So he went out of his way after a 20-year career to just help protect the future of his wait, sport. Wait, um, uh, so people uh, ha- like have the Tommy John surgery before? Yeah, so kids are going in, and I imagine the parents sign off on this when they're, they're, their ligament is healthy. But then they have the surgery. So, Doc, can you explain any logic behind this? And what is going on with these parents? And is there any long-term effects for these kids? So there is the, the probably false theory that people have a, a stronger owner collateral after reconstruction. And after a reconstruction, the tissue is stronger than your native. However, anytime you reconstruct anything and have to have a surgery, just like you know, reconstructing something on your car, you're 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 dealing with damaged goods, uh, and UCL injury is a spectrum, right? Sometimes they've just stretched stretched the ligament, and so I think that when people just stretch the ligament, sometimes instead of taking an appropriate period of rest and rehabilitation, they would rather say, well. I feel like if I'm going to have to rest and rehabilitate, I just want the surgery because I know that that tissue will be stronger than, than my native tissue. And so that's the, that's the falsitude that's being uh, spread. And, you know, it goes back to our discussion about the wrong nature and the wrong way that we're approaching sport in terms of thinking that we're just factory farming athletes we're just factory farming pitchers, you know, and thinking that, well, we can make anybody into a John Smoltz. That's simply not true. And what that is, is we're taking these elbows and we're exposing them to repetitive microtrauma just for a longer length of time. And so that's, that's kind of part of the whole problem and the whole epidemic of Tommy John surgery. The root cause analysis is that we've got too much organized baseball going on for too many people for too long and year round. And so, you know, that's what Smoltz is going after. I mean, he's going after saying, look, you know, thinking that a surgery is going to take little Johnny and make him into John Smoltz is just not true. You know, John Smoltz is that whole secret sauce that we've been talking about, about athleticism, about you know, strength, about ability to resist pain and being able to bear through pain that's there. And then also entering into the sport at just the right time so that you're not overexposed to the sport. And so he's on the right track with that statement. And I think also what, but the the finger probably really needs to be pointed at these year round leagues, you know, these travel leagues, you know, this, this, year-round baseball and that's what's going to take these pitchers and chew them up and even if you put a new ligament in that person he's just going to chew that new ligament up you know because his form's probably not what it needs to be he probably doesn't have the the strength and one last example i love these guys i love this family this family has a i think he's he's 15 and he's throwing 90 miles per hour and you look at him and he's 5'10 and weighs 175 pounds. That guy ain't supposed to be throwing 90 miles per hour. If that guy throws 90 miles per hour, 
he throws out his elbow. And that's what he had. He had a UCL strain. And instead, and they want, you know, they want it repaired with an internal brace because then he's going to be stronger. And what they just don't realize is if they would just turn him off for two years, just turn that kid off. He's obviously got the form that he can get to 90, but he ain't got the frame yet. And he'll probably have the frame in two years or three years. He'll have the muscles. He'll have the height. But right now he's 5'10", 175, throwing nine miles per hour. He's going to throw his elbow out. But but they can't see it. You know, they're just like, nope, nope. They got blinders on. They're just like, no, we got to get him back out. No, he's got to play his senior year. No, if he doesn't play his senior year, then he won't get to be able to play college. And you're just like, you're not seeing the forest for the trees. And I love you, but you're you're wrecking your kid's elbow. Well, I mean, and but but that's what that's we were what discussing. The idea of like having enough maturation and training history that you effectively create the armor that you need to be able to survive the demands of what you're using. Yeah. And, and realizing the right time, you know what I mean? Like a, you know, the, a person who's fully grown and is tall and has all the muscle in the world, that's the guy who's going to be throwing 90 miles per hour, throwing a hundred miles per hour. Same with, you know, certain aspects of football. You know, but we're putting these we're putting these 13 year olds out there and then we 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 clap and we highlight. We love it when they throw 90 miles per hour. And all we're doing is clapping when they're doing something that that 15 year old is going to hurt his elbow for life. <laughs> we had a conversation about that with um, uh, with the ACL, with ligament dominance versus muscle dominance. You know, those uh, athletes that, are, that don't have enough strength. So then they're depending upon their ligaments to reduce force and do all these things opposed from having more musculature and more strength and more power to be able to allow the muscles to do what they need to do, which is, you know, apply and reduce force and generate force. Mm -hmm. Fatigue is when people get hurt, you know, and fatigue is when you're no longer using your muscles for the neuromuscular movement. You're using your, your ligaments, you know, you all probably for sure get that. Get strong and get in good shape. Yep. Injury risk reduction. People. And if you get hurt, call Dr. Ants. <laughs> doc. Uh, I, uh, but, Doc, I always tell people, too, um, um, and a lot of people are like, well, I want to find somebody local. I'm like, if you got to go get on a plane to go find the best person, go find the best person and go interview them and talk to them and make sure you feel comfortable for them. Because they asked me, they're like, you flew all the way to Florida for your shoulder? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I flew from Philadelphia to Colorado. Like, I, I was like, I... I have to find the right surgeon or, you know, and it has to fall within the Stedman tree or at least figure out with this stuff. But, um, no, uh, uh, thank you so much for jumping on here and also for, you know, working on me and helping me along. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. All good stuff. And if you want to follow Dr. Ants, uh, you're on Instagram and if you want to get a hold of you, they can. Yeah. Let's say somebody out there wants to get a hold of you. How, How do they reach you, doc? You know, uh, uh, shoot me an, an email or just oh. shoot me. That's probably the best thing. You know, if you're listening to this, you know, I've, I've been kind of blind to the social media world. Um, but, I'm, you know, we're starting to get more involved in it and figure out how to participate in it. And that was, that's part of Andrewsism. Andrews, you know, says that you're never supposed to really market yourself, you know, but at the same time, social media is just how people are communicating, mm-hmm. how people are interacting and, and it's the evolution of it. You know, from this podcast, if you hear me, just send me an email. It's anz.adam.w at gmail.com. You know, and uh, that's one thing that, that the Andrews distills in us is if you just focus on taking good care of good people, 
then you probably don't even have to remember your your office number. They'll find you. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, people, people hunt you down. Uh, I, I think the social media stuff is, uh, especially for you, like where you were, um, I just saw the one where you were talking about like, hey, in this quarantine, we're researching cells. I, like for me personally, like I think that's the coolest stuff. I mean, to be able to see kind of like the advances because I keep waiting for this like text message or something being like, get over here. We can fix everything with some injections and then I'll <laughs> fucking hightail it on over, you know? Yeah, that's that was fun. You know, we're balancing out what they will let us and won't let us. Well, what's appropriate with social media. So, you know, it's obviously that I can post you know pictures of stem cells on Instagram, but, you know, cadaver dissections. Was that something you all like to see, you know, a, a knee and where we drill our ACL, PCL tunnels? Yeah. Some people do and some people don't. You right. know, so. I, I think it's super interesting, maybe because I've had the procedure and then, you know, I'm always asleep during it. So it's like I never really got to see it. But uh, I think it's fascinating. The um, the one that I almost thought I was going to like, I, I just shook my head and was like, this is insane, was watching uh, them do total knee replacements and a shoulder replacement. Like. Uh, <laughs> bring out the like, and, like I, I was like i have a hammer that big i mean like it was unreal like resecting the bone and like cutting it and like wow. i was like and then pounding the uh um uh like the the ball and the spike and like i'm like looking at this and i'm like this is like uh fixing like not a uh, not a normal car this is like fixing like a medium duty diesel truck like where you got to pound out uh you know ball joints and then i'm like holy like that that was just I thought it was killer. I'm sure some people don't like that stuff, but I think it's cool. I tore my proximal biceps. My long head of the biceps tore on a total shoulder about uh, six months ago. Was, <laughs> this guy was huge. I mean, this guy's muscles, he was about your size, John. And I'm with total shoulders, you got to get through a pretty big muscular sleeve. And so um, I was pounding out the glenosphere and I was doing like this and I felt a pop. And I was like, oh crap. I either broke his humerus or I... Uh, I popped my biceps, and sure enough, I popped my biceps. The old John Elway. I've got the. the oh, it it, uh, <laughs> uh, it uh, Venetian blind up, huh? Yeah, it's sitting like right here. Oh, are you going to go in and get it uh, fixed? Uh, well, so I got like, of course, you know, I get a bunch of different opinions. Shocker. One of my partners is very aggressive. He's like, yo, you got to get it fixed. You know, and then I asked Andrews, and he's like, Adam, why would you get a fix? <laughs> what? Why would you do that? So I was like, yeah, I guess Doc's right. You know, <laughs> no good reason. But, but now, like, if I have to turn a screwdriver like this, it spasms up on me. And so I wish I had. But I think if I just keep getting in the weight room, and you know, I think that I'll compensate. You know, all the surrounding oh, yeah. muscle compensate i'll be fine bfr well i mean that's uh that's the interesting thing i mean as you know the uh the body ends up compensating and it's you know um uh there's a guy named uh craig bueller who does a deal called amet activated muscle integration amet out of um caseville utah and he made a great point working with all these olympic athletes that the world's best athletes are the ones that can find a way to compensate around injury and he's like, you know, uh, like everybody's injured, but how well you can perform with the injury is what dictates. And I always thought that was pretty fascinating. And he's like, you know, some people, like you said, like they have this injury and they can't do anything. Other people, they just body compensates around it and like nothing ever misses. So it's pretty. But he always said, if you get to the point where it doesn't work the way you want, then you have to look at different ways. Adapt or die. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Two hours. We did it. We did it. <laughs> yeah. 
Thanks, Doc, and thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for listening to another episode of the Premier Podcast, Instrument Conditioning. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. If you have questions for Dr. Ants, he's actually offered up what sounds like is his personal email address, ants.adam.w at gmail.com. So please, no superstitious email chains or Nigerian prince propositions. A more formal patient form is also available on andrewsinstitute.com backslash physicians. And you know you can check out everything you need to know about ACL injury prevention by heading to academy.powerathletehq.com and clicking on the ACL injury prevention course. Until next time, bye!